If Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> America's first. Blah blah blah. Blah blah blah. Sending out good vibes. Blah blah blah. Good vibes. Blah blah blah. Good vibes. Good vibes. Good vibes. Underneath breaths of deep gratitude and prayers for guidance and protection, and put on a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track, shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. You go down into Mastaba 17 in my doom, that chamber is filled with bats. There is zero staining on the walls and zero smell of ammonia. So I immediately knew that that explanation was bullshit. Okay, guys, welcome back to the America Show. Coming back to you a day late and without our luggage, well, at least without my luggage, um, from our event. Another CAC event. It was a good one. We got everybody's favorite podcaster here. Graham, I'm growing out my hair Dunlop. How's it going, buddy? <laughs> Not bad. How you doing? Pretty good. No yeah. luggage yet, eh? So con- no so CAC has contacted the cabin for those that aren't uh, aware of the acronym. They were they were Darren and, and all the our friends of the show and a bunch of people were at uh, Shasta for Magic on the Mountain. And it was fun, eh? It was good. It was good. Maybe yeah. the best yet. I mean, they're all great. They're all special in their own way. But from, it was nice because we're finally really getting into the swing of things where most of the potential problems we can see coming. You know, there always seems to be this and that, but we're finally getting to the point where we've got a lot of it ironed out and we're building a great team. So it worked out great. It was it was probably the least stressful, I would say. That's what it, it was like, the least stressful. We knew there was enough. There was enough money to pay for it, you know. <laughs> we yeah, knew, yeah. like, we had dealt with the host before, so there was a little bit of stress when I first got to the cabin, <clears throat> but it worked that? out great. Uh, well, you never really know until you get to the cabin and you look through it, you know, and see what the bedrooms look like because all you got are pictures. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it all worked out great. Went off without a hitch. I think uh, everyone probably, I think probably like half the people come back next year. That's great. Yeah, we're going to move it around and do it, I think, a little. We got to figure it out. I mean, next year is fucking jammed already. I don't know how we're going to fit all this shit in next year. So we got to figure out what the dates on that are going to be. I would like it to be maybe a little bit warmer. It wasn't cold. But it could have been cold. And it seems to be trending towards colder on average. So it might be, well, and it's it might be nice for, a little warmer. It's cold for cold. some people. It's cold it for is some cold. People. Yeah, it is cold. Because it was like the day they went in the water the first day they went in the ice it was only like probably like for fahrenheit like 45 degrees so like maybe you know 8c yeah that's perfect for for cold plunging yeah some people would like some sunshine when they get out of the cold plunge and and the other thing is the campers mainly it was hard to sell like i don't think even the campers didn't up camping there was enough room that the campers just set their floor mats up in different corners of the house oh that's cool Cause it was big enough, big enough house to be able to do that. Oh yeah. It's huge. Yeah. Huge with some lost space. There is, um, there's some room for some campers. We didn't really explore the property a whole lot. We didn't need to. So but it was great. It was a good event. Of course, Greg came down up, I guess up from San Diego. 
and uh, hung out with us for a few days. It was funny because I'd rented the host side cabin for us and I didn't coordinate anything with Greg. He's like, I'll just go get my own place. And uh, so we ended up just randomly in the cabin next door to Greg. <laughs> That's awesome. And we didn't even know because we were we were waiting for Joe Roop and he got he had gotten lost on his way up to the host house. So I was like, well, just just fucking send me your location. Because he couldn't figure this out. Send, send, send us your location. We'll come find you. Well, so, maybe he was trying to use magic or something. So he sends the location. He's like 100 yards away. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to walk to find him. And instead of turning left, we turned right. And we walked up around the corner. And there's a THC uh, crossover. You know that vehicle yeah. he has with the wrap yeah, on it? You can't miss it. it. Yeah. So. Yeah, we found Joe Roop. We had a time. Uh, I got in the ice for a bit. Everyone got in the ice for a bit. We went and seen Shasta. We didn't get super close to it, but we went and seen it. Went for a couple hikes. Did some partying. Did a lot of karaoke. Karaoke seems to be a very welcome addition to the contact at the cabin experience. We came out with the rule that if it's your first cack, you have to sing. I think pretty well everyone oh, wow. sang anyway. Wow. Yeah. Was there any like eighties tunes that I could sing now? Like oh, yeah, I did Bon Jovi living on a prayer. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was great. And uh I mean we ate some mushrooms, so So you didn't make it to the mountain though? Oh yeah, we did go to the mountain, but we we're never gonna climb the mountain. Our plan was always no, just no, to go no, up totally. to the mountain and hike. So we got to we went to Shasta the town, Mount Shasta Town or whatever it is, and we we're gonna try and get some water, but the spigot was off. So we did a hike there. There was some snow. The place we were really going to go to walk around the Castle Lake was closed for the season. So that's the other reason we want to push it back a bit. Because that lake, it was kind of like our roads here where they close them. So we got to figure out what date that shit opens so that we can uh, run up. You know? Yeah. How was the little town of Shasta? We weren't really in it, but it was, it was, it was kind of run down. We were oh, yeah? we were much closer to Reading, which is a cool little town. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I mean, shout yeah. out to the legit back guys because they came and hung out with us. Uh not both of them, but Jen and Joe did. Jen, right? Is it Jen? Yeah. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So, yeah, Jen and Joe came and brought us a karaoke machine. Oh, and, they brought uh, the karaoke machine. Hung out for a few hours. But then it turned out we didn't need the karaoke machine because we have a PA system set up, so we just used the PA system. It didn't. We didn't really click. Yeah, but what in do you put it on? What do you What do you put well, on? You, to you do just use YouTube. Uh, YouTube karaoke because yeah, the words have to. Come yeah, on, so. yeah. There's all this. There's YouTube channels just that just. Oh, so they'll to, have all kind. They'll have. All oh yeah, you should have seen some people were singing it. like. Uh, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody. Some like hip hop like, wow. stuff. It was wild. Yeah, it was the. It was really cool. And Owen and and uh, Joe knocked it to the park, and Brandon knocked it to the park. It was a great group. I mean, I'll be honest, coming in, there's a few people that you're like, oof, I don't know, this might be a bit much for you. But by the end, everyone's, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> drinking the Kool-Aid and making lifelong friends. And it was cool because we had post-its and everyone went around and like put a post-it on with their phone numbers and all that. I put it, you've probably seen the picture in the Telegram. I did, I did. Yeah, it's I like an old school things. house party. Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. I wish I could have gone uh, next time. I mean, yeah. 420. I'll be there in Utah for sure. That's uh, that's the one with David Mathis in this time. And Pal's and, coming uh, back. Pal, Pal Brandon will be there. Oh, that's good. Yeah. 
And then, of course, um, and that's and that's a pretty cool venue too. Really, the way the whole backyard is, and all the cool. cabins kind of like face that whole backyard, and people just hang out in the backyard as well. And yeah, and that's in great. That's in, in April, right? April twentieth. So, April twentieth. Yeah, it's great. It's always great. I mean, highly recommended. Some people get a sticker shock when they see the price tag, but I mean, it includes everything. You literally don't have to bring anything. From yeah, that's including like all meals the food, and meals and meals. lodging and. Transportation to and from the airport. I mean, there was even like this time we brought a pound of weed and left with more because a couple other people brought a bunch of weed. So I think we had a pound and Oliver had to take like a pound and a half out of there, uh, all different kinds and bagged up. So we just vacuum packed it all up and we'll bring it to Utah, baby. (laughs) I got to give a shout out to Oliver. And, uh, I mean, obviously all the hosts and Greg, but uh big shout out to Oliver and Bill and Maggie, the kitchen crew. We couldn't have done it without them. Of course, Shauna helped out, of course, and Lacey, a bunch of the girls helping out. Couldn't have done it without them. So, thanks, baby. Um, nailed it. The food was off the hook. And, and I mean, in that shout out, I got to mention Joe and Jen again, because it was Joe who gave me all the local recommendations for restaurants. And everybody loved it. The barbecue was great. It was Fat Daddy's barbecue we did. Cinder's Pizza. And Los Gordos Tacos. We had so much food left over, it was retarded. Crazy. Crazy. So, it was good. It was like, because you know you have those ones where you run out of food? That's not good. When people are still hungry. It's better oh, when yeah, the totally fridge is just crammed with leftovers and there's more food than you can eat. So, yeah, totally, totally. And, and also, like a, and I did promise a shout out to Hank Loby. Who I guess is a young listener. Down oh, in, hey, uh, Hank. Hey, Hank. Hey, Hank. Thanks for listening, bud. And I just want to mention a little bit more about uh, Dave Matheson coming out to, to Utah. I mean, we'll probably have Dave on before that uh, 420 event, but we we do get out to look at the stars and do some sky watching, and, and he explains kind of like his the undying stars and the myths, the myths of the stars. It's pretty fun in that respect. And he'll do like a little presentation there. So it's kind of like being like on a live podcast for a whole weekend you know i mean with 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 the listeners included in the trip oh yeah they were singing out back because there always seems to be a few musicians so a lot of music got played well well, you guys did a did a panel podcast we did a panel podcast which will only be released in plus because it went it was a a little little racy not racy okay hang on not okay let's talk about what plus is then you gotta you gotta explain oh so that's our we have another podcast that Maybe some, most of you guys should know what, I mean, I just found out that some of you guys are maybe a little sucky that we started another podcast. And, no, no, know. no. It's just, it's just one person. It's just grumpy green guy in the chat. So that's well, all. And, and, is it just what him? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, bud. Anyway, we started a whole new podcast, still free hour a week. You can go and listen to hour a week and we actually do two hours though. And we do, we charge you for the second hour. So anyway, if you guys want to do go check that out, this one's going to only go into the uh, second hour because that was a deal that I made with, of course, Greg Carlwood, who wants to put it in his Higher Side Chats Plus, and Joe Roop, who wants to put it in his member section. And the shit was off the hook right away. I mean, the very first question was, uh, did Ch- Tracy Twyman kill herself? Oh. I went down. <laughs> so this is, this is, is this, is this uh, questions from the, the, from the, the group that from are the there? Group, yeah. <laughs> it was a slow start. I'll be honest. At first, I was like, oof. This maybe is not going to work out, but uh, <laughs> once it got going, it was great. And of course, I was started running my mouth and probably got myself in trouble. But 
Not really. I said so, some yeah, things to, that maybe yes. she's a little over the top. Oh boy! But yeah. I actually, I've, I've talked about a, the. I brought up the Kindle thing, oh, and, and it, well, it led into that because you know the question was, who are they? <laughs> yeah, that's a great answer then. Yeah, I mean, it must have been so- <laughs> you could have heard a pin drop in there for a second. <laughs> so, so, oh my God! Now, do we have to? I mean, so we, nope. we've been running into problems with censorship. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not right. I mean, like, we just got another YouTube strike. Like, I put all this work into YouTube, and I know I shouldn't be putting all this work into YouTube, but we wanted to kind of put some of our outlawed clips in there, and and sort of re. We still have a YouTube channel, and. Is that you for know, saying that transgender women aren't women? I think it, it. They called it medical misinfo, though. That could have been the gonna only. They're going to say it right medical, now. Be careful. They're going to. They're going to get rid of this one now. Too. Well, this one's not going to go up. So, well, unless you put it up later, because we're in strike phase. Oh yeah, right. We're in strike phase again. So yeah. So this is the problem. We're in perpetual, almost strike phase, almost deletion on there. So. I think we're going to make a channel for our audiobooks so I can put little excerpts from the books in there. And I stuff mean, like we're that. officially into the cancellation process. <laughs> you know, like we're being canceled on multiple platforms. And and then, so yeah, so we had problems with some of our stuff. I mean, we, we don't want to get into the details, but we had problems with some some Kindle stuff and, and audiobooks. And uh, it's just, man, it is, it is like you make one wrong move out there and they don't even give you warnings or nothing. They just shut you the fuck down. It's like, here you go. Boom. Done. Arguably. No, wrong no move. appeal. No, arguably. What? Arguably wrong move. Might not have been a wrong move. You know, you could argue. A case. Oh, 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 totally. Totally. But I mean, I mean, in their perspective, like a wrong move. In there. And that's the problem. What, how do the boundaries change and where do the goalposts end up, right? I mean, how are we supposed to keep track of all this? Well, I got it. I cracked it all open on the podcast panel with oh the contact oh at the cabin guest. So, okay. <laughs> and then, and then, of course, uh, Greg and, and Joe are drug into the conversation as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, speaking of YouTube. So this this episode we're talking about uh, we're doing the intro for right now is called it's the land of Cam with with Jeffrey Drum and and this is on you we put this on YouTube so you can go see it I put a link in the show notes because Jeffrey goes through his presentation for us that uh, that he does talking about you know all the pyramids and how he basically has a theory that you know this is how they they made uh, productions of the Egyptian blue paint and how they made ammonia and other mass chemical productions in the plant. And it, and it really like his, his, his presentation is making sense. I mean, we, we don't agree on everything regarding uh, ancient advanced technologies and stuff like that. And maybe the age of things like um, there's some, you know, probably disagreement there, but I like what he's doing with the, the pyramids and the chemical manufacturing. And he's got a book called the land of chem an initiation into ancient chemistry through the degrees of the Egyptian pyram- pyramids. So, it's a good so yeah, check that out. It's also on Rumble and Rockfin. We've been putting our videos and our audio, well, sorry, our audio and this video on Rumble and Rockfin as well, just to spread spread stuff out as much as possible. Absolutely. So, yeah, and before we move on, I should just give a shout. I, I mean, I can't go through everyone's name, of course, but uh, I get, I, I do just shout out to everybody who came. It was a great group. Everyone was fantastic. We had a great time. 
Um, yeah, a bunch of people. You know, as usual, we had a half a dozen people say it was the best trip they've had of their life or the best trip they've had in a decade. And it's, we're starting to notice you throw a pretty good party. And we're glad you guys came. And I, I highly recommend coming to Utah. It's probably the cheapest event to get into. Some of the different, uh, because we can, the venues are a little cheaper there and stuff. It's our cheaper event. It's our cheapest event. And I was just going through it today. Yeah. And again, it's like, it's really just gas, food, lodging, all that's covered. Right. So that's really and, the expense and, and of the event. The people you know? out. We got to get, yeah. uh, getting, getting Matheson out. Of talent stuff. Yeah. though. Yeah. 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 Right so, on buddy. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah, it was great. Contact at the cabin.com. So what's going on with all these UFOs and shit? Is it oh, true dude. that in the alien movie, Close oh, Encounters, mean? that the train yeah, derailments yeah. were covered yeah. for you? Is oh, it yeah. true? I think so. Yeah, I'm pretty think sure. Think so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Well, I You've put it this way, it? I didn't even, I didn't even think. To, oh yeah, I've seen it a couple times, but I didn't even think to, uh, to to fact check that. But it gets deeper than that, dude. I mean, you know that that movie. Did you hear about that train derailment? And that the movie that was out called White Noise was about that town and the pe- and a train derailment and the people that were in the movie living in that town are saying like this is all coming true and like really? and the, and net and Netflix was pushing it recently even though it was from 2017 like what is going on like what happens how in can the movie so- the they they it gets chemically the train derails and there's chemical contamination but what happens at the end I mean. What's oh, that? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't watch the movie. I'm just huh. telling you that it's like this. I don't know. Is it predictive programming or is it just coincidence or is it like, you know, what is it? Why, how know. can it get this complex? Right. And then you talk about the, the close encounters when one. When you're, here's mine. When you're all like co- collectively manifesting reality, shit can get weird fast. Yeah, that, exactly. So do you want to hear my little theory about the the So UFOs? does it tie in everything, the balloons and the... My theory? Yeah. No. Because I have a theory too. So I'm just wondering if the balloons and the train derailments and all that, if they all fit in together. Oh, oh yeah. I do. I, I do. I do. I, I do think that something's up with all, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think? Well, the, well, here's the weird thing. Like they came out with that whole um, official government paper on UFOs and they need money to do these investigations. They call them UAPs now, right? Unidentified aerial phenomena. But they're not calling these UAPs all of a sudden. They're calling them objects. They're going out of their way to call them objects. Even though the one in Canada, the Canadian Air Force dude, slipped up and called it a balloon. And then the reporter that was trying to keep the narrative of it being an object got all weirded out and upset at him because he spilled the beans. So, but there's also that hexagonal one, but my, 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 my sort of little weird hypothesis here, and this isn't the whole reason, but they can use it for this reason, bringing it out now, as we talk about, you know, there's this controversy with Randall Carlson and and his plasmoid technology of, of uh, Malcolm Bendall's that he's trying to put out. And there's a lot of people trying to debunk that now and JRE recorded with him and Joe Rogan's not releasing the episode yet. But it's it's moving forward, right? Randall's moving it forward, and Randall's defending this pretty hard. He did a live stream last Thursday. It's uh, live 021 on the Randall Carlson YouTube channel if people want to see it, him talking about the JRE problem. And, you know, I think Rogan spent 
a lot of time kind of derailing the technical aspect of it. Rogan wa- or Randall wanted to go over like the tech of it, the science behind it. But Rogan kept sort of trying to poke at uh, Malcolm and try and like test his credibility, I guess. Anyways, it's going forward. The Indian government's involved. Other corporations are involved in trying to buy these licenses for this technology that should enable, you know, uh, over unity energy, like cars running on water once they get heated up and stuff like that. So what if they can't get a hold of it? What if they can't put, what if they can't put a lid on that? If they down these so-called objects, they could come out and talk about um, this new energy they found or this dangerous energy they found. Maybe it's got to do with separating, you know, water into hydrogen, or maybe it's got to do with plasmoids or who knows, but all of a sudden they're admitting that they're shooting down objects and they don't know what the propulsion systems are. And they could, they could get, they could, they could say, this is dangerous plasma energy. This is dangerous stuff. We have to make this illegal. We have to clamp it down or they can get ahead of it themselves or say they're getting ahead of it themselves. I mean, I just feel like this is an opportunity for them to, to, to get ahead of this whole energy problem. So you think it's, I think it's like, uh, so while Shauna thinks it's blue beam. It's too weird to be blue beam. Like they are saying, they are saying that it's like, Oh, we're leaving it open. We don't know what it could be. Right. So it definitely could be blue beam. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with I, that, it's but it's just to too because, odd the way that because after seeing how bad they did at COVID, you could see their blue beam being a total fucking disaster. Yeah. But I think it's just going to be like Russia, China, so that we can just um, keep this war going. But why would they shoot him down then? I mean, and they can't even. Fight. It's just remember when so Truot says like, said that uh, they were going to blow an EMP over Canada. Yeah, they all seem to be in that area. Yeah, in the top northern part of Canada. Yeah, or sorry, what if all the satellites the are like, balloons and they're all coming down <laughs> because space is fake? But but if if it's blue beam, how are they how are they saying that they're, they're so they think they're shooting alien aircraft down? I mean, as if they would be allowed to shoot them down, right? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, Why what would was you the say, thing that No Agenda played from that Economist talking about uh, the blue beam one? Yeah, the yeah. alien I mean, invasion to make us. Oh yeah, totally. If we could do this, I, and for and then in eighteen yeah. months we could fix everything. Yeah, economically. Yeah. Hard to it's know. fascinating. And, and then, of course, the hexagon one, which is fascinating because the UFO I saw in Israel was like dodecahedron shape. So it's interesting getting those sort of sacred dimensions in there. But why would they put it out? Why would they shoot these things over water, too? They can't even find the debris. I mean, how ridiculous. Why yeah, would you I shoot it over water? It's like fucking bizarro land. Huh? It's so fucked picking up. up. They're talking about how they're picking up pieces out of the lake or out of the ocean or whatever, and then they have to tag them. And I'm like, what? Why'd they shoot what? a missile out of a balloon? Well, that dude, you should have heard the analysis on why they had to use the P-32 missile or whatever it was. Like, they're advertising the type of missile it is. I know, right? but why not just shoot a hole in it? Because it, it, it takes forever to, to gas out. Shoot 10 holes in shoot. it. No, it, it takes forever. Shoot still. 500 it, holes in it's, it. No, it's it's a thousand holes. Well, I I know, I know, I know. Why don't they just blast the shit out of it? I mean, that thing probably that plane probably shoots like fucking three hundred rounds a second. It's crazy. Three hundred rounds a minute. I mean, and then why would you let it go all the way across the states and then shoot it over the water? Like it's the silliest. 
this is it's but i i guess it doesn't matter i mean they can just say whatever they want and a decent percentage of the people are just going to believe whatever they say 40 percent, 50 percent i had no service so i'm like i was pretty out of the loop you know i was just seeing like little bits and pieces so as again there's that was the one downfall to cabin that also turns out to be probably an up and up yeah, as well people, as there's yeah, no service. Yeah. So you can't, the Wi-Fi don't work. You get little intermittent bits, but nobody's on their phone. So. Yeah. All right, what do you got? Well, what's your theory on the UFOs then? Oh, that it's uh, going to be used to prop, pro- perpetuate World War Three. Yeah. yeah. It was China, now China's mad. It's going to be Russia too. It's, I mean, it's just more, I think we're slipping into this uh, maybe a tripolar, at least a bipolar, maybe a tripolar, maybe a quadpolar world. It's not going to be the West is best anymore. The USA isn't going to police everything anymore. That's so it's going to get weird. And there was even some shit over that, uh, UFO stuff that kind of sounded, you know, talk about North American Alliance and stuff like that. I think that's just where the future's headed as yeah, it is. Exactly. So, I mean, whether it's real or fake or whatever, it doesn't. I matter, think yeah. it's going to somehow be some sort of act of war from some motherfucker. That's so weird the way you put that because that's where I'm at right now. It doesn't even matter to me if it's real or fake. Like I, I just it doesn't. That's not even the point of it. It's how are they going to use this? And am I going to be prepared? Because here's the thing: I was on Union of the Unwanted on Monday. Check it out too. It's a great chat about a lot of this stuff, and. um you know, when you've been following UFOs for so long and you know there's been thousands of these things flying around, thousands of Tic Tacs, why all of a sudden now are they shooting them down? Like what? Now you pick you pick this time? Yeah, it's whack. So. Something's up. All right, what else you got? Support the show. GrandAmerica.ca slash support. If you like us and you get some value from the show, if it's adding some value to your life, to your commute, to your work day, wherever you're listening, America.ca slash support. Sign up for a monthly, make a one-time donation, or head over to GrandAmericaOutlaw.ca and listen to my rants over there, my crazy off-the-hinge rants, and uh, get all that extra content. I'll tell you, that counts. If you go sign up for Outlaw, that counts. So this show you could still support because it's still just, you know, we do a lot of work. It's free. Send us some cash. Helps. Or some tunes. Some stories, some synchronicities, yeah, some sightings, some, some content. emails, some feedback, yeah. Some dick pics, well, com. I got uh, Jeffrey's bio here. I, uh, no quote. If you're done. Um, yeah, I do have a quote. Um, All right, we'll do that at least. It's the profound quote of the week. Can you guess it? It's the profound quote of the week. Can you guess the human who spoke it or wrote it down? Okay, I, I can't really hear that coming in. So you can guess hit. this. No, and then um, guess who this is? And and I'm gonna where I got this quote from. I'm gonna talk more about that next week. I'll save it for then. Um, the artist's task is to save the soul of mankind. And anything less is a dithering while Rome burns. 
because of the artists who are self-selected for being able to journey into the other. If the artist cannot find the way, then the way cannot be found. Alan Watts. Close. Uh, Mark Twain. No, I think he'd be more in Alan Watts's like um, time frame. I don't know when that is. Maybe even milieu. Milieu. Um, Bacon. No, no, no. Like this is like recent. Like he died in maybe the eighties or nineties or something. Oh, really? Uh, I don't know. Terrence McKenna. God damn, Terrence McKenna. All right, I'll take that bio now. So this is uh, Land of Chem. I must admit that I have a bit of an Indiana Jones complex, and watching the Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was a kid first ignited my interest in Egypt. In 2012, I began researching the pyramids and some of the alternative theories about their true purpose as a serious side hobby. One of my life's greatest aspirations was to one day see these structures in person. And in 2017, I finally got the chance when my friend Bethany agreed to join me on my first week-long trip to Egypt. I had a very specific research-oriented oriented itinerary planned. But our guide, Yusuf, who was also our guide there, by the way, shout out to Yusuf, had some unexpected surprises in store for us, including a journey inside the Red Period of Dashur. Upon entering the pyramid, we became overwhelmed by the intense smell of ammonia and were able to see the chemical staining on the walls of the inner chambers. The theories and story contained within this book are inspired by my experience inside the Red Pyramid and my time visiting Egypt, which led me to begin investigating the country's ancient structures with a focus on chemistry. Thank you so much for your interest in the land of Cam, and I hope you enjoy reading the story as much as I am writing it. So that's about his book, but his YouTube channel's um, got about, I don't know, 80 videos now on this whole thing going through it all. It's, uh, it's quite interesting. So let us know what you think and tell them that we sent you when you make comments and stuff. That's right. Enjoy the chat. Land of Cam. Jeffrey Drum from the land of Kem. Welcome to Great America. How you doing? Thank you so much for having me on, man. Appreciate oh, it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is this is going to be great. I mean, I, I can't wait. I've been watching your stuff on YouTube. And actually, shout out to Brian. He was on the bus a lot with us. Uh, he was watching you as we were going to the some of these sites in Egypt. He was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was like studying your work. And he's like, you got to check out this land of Kem. Cool. Cool. So, yeah, it'll be nice to talk to you about it. Um, I mean, maybe give us a, just a quick like background of uh, like maybe the genesis of how you started the, your channel and your research. I guess we can. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah. Get, per- perfect deep, topic. And that's a little, little context. 
Yeah, he wasn't so that's just actually on the bus. I... He was on the back of the bus, which was the cooler <laughs> crowd of all the 70 or 80 people that were touring around Egypt. You know, the cool people kind of conglomerated at the back of the green bus. So he was right there in the back of the bus. So shout out to the back of the bus group. And uh, so you guys went on a big tour. Us. That's a lot of people for a group, man. No, it was like 60. It was oh, wow. 65 attendees plus hosts. So I think it was like 74 of us total or something like that. Who was your tour guide? Kemet. You- Yusuf. Yusuf. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, Yusuf and, and, is the best. And ben, and ben from Uncharted X, yeah. And the, and the Brothers of the Serpent. Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. So, yeah. so if you want to fire up that presentation, I can literally walk you through the genesis and the development of this entire theory, which actually started with that collection bowl at Abu Sir. And so this all started back in like 2012. I really got into researching the Egyptian pyramids some of the alternative theories, which there's really only one that focuses on the potential functionality of the Great Pyramid, which is obviously Christopher Dunn. Everybody knows about that, right? Christopher Dunn, Great Pyramid, makes electricity, shoots laser beams in outer space. So that's great. And I wanted to go and see and evaluate all this stuff in person to see if I could determine that if there was any validity to this electricity theory. So long story short, I had a a blessing in 2017 where I was able to go to Egypt for my first time, and I was going to investigate the potential production of electricity in the Great Pyramid. And this is one of the topics that I've kind of mentioned before on my channel, that if you are going to propose a theory about the function of the pyramids, it needs to be a comprehensive theory that addresses the function of every single one of these structures. And that, in my opinion, is the biggest deficiency of Christopher Dunn's work is that he focuses exclusively on the Great Pyramid as if all the other structures are completely irrelevant. And to me, that is not a comprehensive assessment of the potential function of these structures if it only looks at one of them and it completely disregards the rest of them. So you have three magnificent pyramids on the Giza Plateau, but everybody only focuses on just the one. So this was kind of a surprise. You know, 2017, we're out with Yusuf. I didn't know that we were going to get a chance to go to Abu Sir. He had set up the special permission for us. And so we go out there. And again, I'm looking for evidence of the production of electricity. All of a sudden, I stumble across this collection bowl. And I immediately knew that I was looking at a collection bowl for chemicals and that these structures did not have anything to do with the production of electricity. So this this artifact, in, in terms of conventional archaeology, is called a collection basin for drainage water. And there are several reasons why that is absolute nonsense. Uh, Say, for example, like the, the gutters on your house, right? We don't have a fancy collection bowl to collect all of that drainage water, right? If it's just drainage water, you aren't collecting it in an exquisitely carved red quartzite bowl, right? They had to go through a lot of effort to bring this exotic geology to the site It's from hundreds of miles away. And if you were going to carve a drainage conduit, all you have to do is carve it into the bedrock, right? It makes no sense that they went through all of this extra work to bring this thing here. Not to mention the fact that when I saw this thing, I immediately knew that I would inevitably find the inlet shafts to this collection bowl. And that's one of the things that during my last trip in 2022, we had several legitimate archaeological discoveries that I made just kind of walking around the sites, you know, so we're not moving up sand or digging for anything. It was just stuff that I was kind of looking for. So again, I immediately proposed that this was for collection of the chemical that was being produced in the adjacent pyramid. 
So you guys know from having been at this site, this is that the one with like a bunch of bowls. There was like bowls all no, over the no, place. Yeah, or that, that was Abu Ghraib. Yeah, that's that's Abu Ghraib, and I'll, I'll get to that here in just a second because I've got some some commentary on those bowls as well. And so there's there's various different configurations of these bowls. Some of them have holes. This one does not have any holes. The bowls at Abu Ghraib either have one hole or three holes that have been drilled into the side of the basin. And I'm pretty sure I have some pictures later on in the slides, but nonetheless, yeah, I, do, yeah. I propose that, you know, this is a collection bowl for the collection of the chemicals. And I knew that eventually I would find that inlet shaft. So click to the next one. I want to mention something quickly. Cause when, when yeah. I was walking around that site and use, I was with Yusuf when we walked up to that bowl and he, he was commenting that he thinks this is like original, like this yes. is part of the structure that was here before the temple and all that was there. And I thought that, that is just another one of those examples of a fairly precise thing that was made prior to maybe dynastic Egypt. Right. So I was like, I was keen to get some sort of like uh 3d thing or measurement of it just to see like how round is it even, I know some of it would have been eroded and all that, but it seems fairly precise even for a bowl. It is. And it's in, it's in exceptional condition given that this thing is still in situ, which is very unusual that you find these artifacts still in their original position which we actually found some of the original housings for the bowls at Abu Ghraib. But if you click to the next one, so I propose that the inlet shaft for this collection system would be discovered at the base of the pyramid. So during this trip, you usually come around the front. You know, when you go to Abu Sir, you come up from the front of the pyramids usually. But this time we were coming from Abu Ghraib and we happened to go around the back side of the pyramid. So I'm coming around this corner and I see this thing and the guide at the site was the one who kind of moved all the sand out of that hole. But this thing was buried. But as soon as I saw that red quartzite lip right there, I knew exactly what I was looking for, which is the inlet for that conduit system. So this red quartzite conduit goes about 200 feet underneath that black basalt floor. And I'm going to be talking about the function of the geology later on in the presentation, because all of the geology has a function as related to an interaction with the Earth's electromagnetic energy field. What pyramid is that again? So this, I believe, is the technically called the Pyramid the of Nyuserae, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, so this, this quartzite conduit goes about 200 feet underneath the base of this temple. And again, it's very exotic geology for this quote-unquote drainage system. So this was literally the first artifact that put me into the direction of investigating the production of chemicals, because if they were producing chemicals, they also had to be collecting those chemicals as evidence as that collection bowl. So and you don't have like a crazy. background as a chemical guy or anything like that. <laughs> so I've gotten kind of some kudos on my channel. So like I used to be, I used to do bodybuilding shows when I was in college, I was a skateboarder. I was like a wannabe DJ in the EDM scene. I have a degree in psychology with a minor in Spanish, but I was just always fascinated by chemistry. And this has really just been a passion of mine. And everybody's saying, you know, you've come farther than anyone else ever has, and you're not associated whatsoever with conventional academia. So I'm just, as far as everybody knows, I'm just a tourist and a science fiction writer, but I don't have any academic background in all this stuff. That being said, before I published my book, I worked with a PhD in chemical engineering who was a master's level collegiate professor to present all of my theories. 
to make sure that before I published this book, everything was validated and verified by somebody that had professional and academic qualifications. So he literally ripped my whole theory to shreds and had me explain it piece by piece by piece and rebuild the whole thing. And I remember Ed saying, he's like, I'm going to treat you like a grad student presenting your dissertation. You know, so he literally like put me through the ringer. And at the end of the day, he believed in my work so much that he let me put his name in the introduction to my book. So that's kind of a testament to the fact that there is legitimate chemical engineering involved in the production of my theory. This isn't just speculation or pseudoscience. This is all very meticulously researched and documented um, per the specifications that are related to chemical engineering. We'll talk about that a little later. Yeah, it might be hard for people to even like believe this or wrap their head around it. But once you see sort of the evidence and some of the big picture stuff that you talk about, it makes it starts to make some sense. Right. And again, you know, the, the conventional historical explanation of this thing is that it's a collection bowl for drainage water, which is really a travesty because a lot of work went into making this system. And again, they just say it's oh, it's just nothing to see here. Just a collection bowl for drainage water, you know, moving on to the next thing. So go on to the next slide. So after we go to Abu Sir, we go to the Red Pyramid of Dashur, which I'm sure you guys have been inside this structure. Yep, yep. We You've did. seen the chemical staining. You smelled the ammonia when you got to the final synthesis chamber. And I remember very distinctly that Yusuf and I were talking about alchemy. And I was like, man, this is a chemical reactor. And I already knew at that point, it was work in progress in my mind, this kind of theory and development. And I didn't know exactly how all the stuff worked quite yet, but this is still my first journey. We go inside the Red Pyramid. I'm like, holy shit, it smells like ammonia in here. And I'm very familiar with the applications for ammonia as related to industrial fertilizer and agriculture and all this kind of stuff. So it would have been a very useful chemical for this ancient civilization. And of course, the explanation that you get is that all of this staining is from the bats and that the smell of ammonia is from the bats. Well, I've been in probably 15 or 20 other structures in Egypt that have tons of bats that have absolutely no staining and absolutely zero smell of ammonia. If you go down into Mastaba 17 in my doom, that chamber is filled with bats. There is zero staining on the walls and zero smell of ammonia. So I immediately knew that that explanation was bullshit. So fast forward five years, and I'm working with a group from Russia called the Asita Project, and they took samples of this staining material back in 2010. And I've presented that in multiple episodes on my YouTube channel, the chemical analysis of this staining material. And it has absolutely nothing to do with bats. It is a combination of iron oxide, strontium, and about 40 different rare exotic metals that are extruding from the stone. So this is material that composes the limestone itself. And due to the fluctuation of temperature and pressure inside of these reactors, the chamber walls were heated so much that these extrusions started to get squeezed out when the temperature and pressure fluctuated inside of these chambers. Okay. That's super interesting. Well, uh, I can't wait to hear about the black boxes too in the, in the Osiris, Osiris chaft and uh, oh, yeah. some of yeah, the other so box, some of the other boxes that we saw. And, and I want to mention your, uh, I mean, the thing I love about your channel is you're showing these graphics as well. These um, that seem very accurately done of just the inside chambers of these pyramids, at least of what's known. Yeah. Very, uh, 
Very interesting to see that, to see them in graphical format like that. I appreciate that. And what you can see here, specifically on the uh, image on the left, if you look at the top of the chamber, you can literally see that flow pattern as the staining moves from the top of the chamber through that connecting shaft. So this is an indication of the fluid dynamics that were involved in the chemical reaction process. And if you look at the lower portion of the chamber, you can see those wave stainings on the lower portion of the chamber. And we've actually produced some demonstrations using modern uh, materials where we reproduced those exact same fluid dynamic patterns in a container with the same dimensions as this chamber. So again, the mechanisms of operation that I've proposed in my theory, we're now testing it and we're building models and doing animations and all this kind of stuff that's literally evaluating as much as we can yeah. the mechanisms of operation that are involved in the theory. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. It does seem like an old pressure chamber when I was in it. I mean, when I was there, I was saying it seems like an old pressure chamber before we had titanium and things like that. hundred percent. To make vessels. So that, you're absolutely right. So this thing has reduced volume toward the top of the chamber. So if you look at some physics equations, a great way to increase the pressure of a gas is to decrease its volume. So if you have a gas in X size of container and you reduce that by half, you have doubled the pressure and doubled the temperature. And that is exactly why this upper chamber was configured with reduced volume because the gases were being compressed into that upper portion of the reactor, which increases temperature and increases pressure. And there are some other mechanisms of operation that are involved in this. And um, we can kind of get to that later if you want to go to the next one. So we're talking about a gas in the top and then the pressure is creating a fluid in the bottom. Correct. Right. So. It starts by filling these chambers with water. And if you have a water insoluble gas, such as methane, which is the starting reactant chemical, methane is water insoluble. So if you fill chamber one with methane gas, and then you fill that chamber with water, the insoluble methane gas will be compressed into the upper portion of that reaction chamber. It's not going to dissolve into the water. It's literally like a plunger mechanism that forces that gas into the upper portion of the chamber. Again, increasing temperature and pressure, but there's some other factors that are involved that really ramp up the, the speed and efficacy of that reaction process. So I started looking into the industrial scale production of ammonia. And over here on the left, we have the original apparatus that was designed by Fritz Haber, Nazi scientist who was researching and studying Egypt. And then he produces this apparatus for the industrial scale production of ammonia. Just take a look at the configuration of this apparatus on the left. You will see three distinct chambers that are connected by connecting shafts. And the third chamber is elevated above the first two. You see how these first two are on the same level? And then the third chamber is put up top. Yep. Okay, so this guy could have configured this apparatus in any way, but it is literally designed as an homage to the place from whence it came because this modern chemical reactor operates on the exact same principles of physics that were involved in the operation of the red pyramid and it was producing the exact same chemical so i have an idea that old fritz haber in his research and trips to egypt also went inside the red pyramid 
saw the chemical staining, smelled the ammonia, and did the exact same thing that I did when I returned, which was attempt to reverse engineer the structure. And instead of writing a book and putting it on a YouTube channel, they made it a secret. And now it is our industrial scale production called the Haber process for the manufacture of ammonia, starting with methane gas, which is exactly what they did in the ancient Egyptian pyramids. And the methane wow. gas they would have just got from like camel shit. You're, you're right on. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> Okay, so ammonia, just a little background on the term ammonia. So our modern word ammonia, the etymology for this word literally traits to sol ammoniac, which is the salt of Amon. Amon being the Egyptian deity of fertility. Okay, so our modern word ammonia literally traits back to the god Amon. And we find the first production of ammonia in a place called the Temple of Jupiter in Egypt. So we have literal connections. And this is another one of the theories that I propose on my channel. And we'll get to here in the next slide that go ahead and click to the next one, that some of these gods and symbols from the ancient Egyptian dynastic religion are actually dual layer esoteric symbols that have multiple layers of interpretation. So the first one is a spiritual and religious interpretation, Amon, the god of fertility, right? But for our esoteric initiates who understood the true meaning of these symbols, Amon is a symbol for ammonia, the fertilizer. So Amon isn't a deity of fertility. It is literally a symbol for the ancient chemical ammonia. Interesting. Wow. Why do they need to build a whole pyramid around it? Like, let's use it using the red pyramid, for example. Um, like, why wouldn't they just be able to build sort of simple shafts that you could get in and out of? Sure, sure. Great question. So one thing is maintaining the stability of the internal reaction chamber system. So these are not standalone chambers. You can't just build these chambers without an external framework supporting the entire thing. You also want to eliminate environmental contamination, methane. And when we get to the Giza Plateau, we're talking acidic gases. You do not want this stuff escaping out into the atmosphere. So the larger body of stones surrounding your reactor, the more environmentally safe your reactors are. These are also containers with extremely high pressure. So if you don't have your containers encased in a massive body of stones, your reaction chamber system is going to fall to pieces and explode apart. So there's multiple reasons for the body of stones that surround the pyramid, but also we'll get to it later. We did experiments with an electromagnetic energy field machine, and we tested the different types of stone in proximity to this electromagnetic energy field. So there's multiple functions for the body of the stones, practical ones related to the stability of the reaction chamber system, but also ones that further expedite the e efficacy of the chemical reaction process. Cause that electromagnetic energy is going into the system and I'll get to that later. So they, so how do they get all the water in there? And then the gas is in there. I mean, I yep. remember one of the pyramids and I can't remember which pyramid it was. It had uh, some false doors on the top. There was a top section there and, and they all have those shoots went up, too, right? And they, and they have these, yeah. And they have these false doors that would, I think that even the the original architects or uh, uh, what do you call them archaeologists that went in there, 
the doors actually opened and closed on them. They felt drafts of wind coming yeah, through. Sliding, like, sliding that, doors. Yeah. Was that uh, one of the ways they got the gas or the water in and out? Or are you thinking so like proposed, where Marty climbed up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so like that in the wonderful. Bent Pyramid, for example, they have two stone valves in the western shaft of the Bent Pyramid. And I explain exactly. So any of the pyramids the that have moving stone valves. So we also wait, have. Wait, wait, wait. Is, so is the bent pyramid the one with all the vases underneath it? So that's the step pyramid. That's the step. The bent, okay, the so the bent pyramid is the, the one, one by the red pyramid. There, yeah, yeah. You can like in, see in them. Yeah, yeah okay, right behind okay. it. And so the bent pyramid was designed to convert the ammonia from the red pyramid into another chemical. And we have the exact same setup today in our modern reaction facilities where the ammonia production reactor is is located in close proximity to either a solid compound fertilizer production or nitric acid production facility. So that's the reason that the bent pyramid is right behind the red pyramid. But to answer your question about the water, all of these pyramids had reservoirs surrounding the structures. So there was an enclosed reservoir around the structure. And they were either utilizing, so all of these things also operated on the flooding of the Nile River. So when the Nile River flooded, it literally brings the water up to the threshold of the temple. And there are underground shaft systems and aquifers that run underneath all of these structures that bring water to the site. So they were filling the reservoir surrounding these structures with water. And then there were shaft systems, for example, at the Red Pyramid, it's on the eastern side where that uh, false pyramid top is, there's an inlet shaft over there that leads from the reservoir down into the reaction chamber systems. And I'll show you here in a minute where we think that is located. If you want to click to the next one. And then I'm thinking like, I don't know about all of them, but I know the Great Pyramid, the King's Chamber and the Queen's Chamber both have double shafts. Yep. So the one in the, okay, so Red Pyramid. All right. So this is just from my channel. And we've done some experiments that demonstrate the fluid dynamics that I have proposed. And this is one on the right where we tested the water filling mechanism in some containers that are reminiscent of the, you know, obviously this isn't exact. It's just kind of a mock-up for demonstration purposes, but he put a temperature or not a temperature gauge, but a pressure gauge on the top of these containers. And the pressure rises as the water moves to the top. So I have videos on my channel that have all of these demonstrations on there. And if you want to click to the next one. Okay, so this is at the bottom of the northern pump shaft in the Red Pyramid. And I have a friend who's been doing some models for me that proposes that this is the water inlet that delivered water into the Red Pyramid. So we've done a demonstration that shows this configuration. And you see this slide here on the left with that arrow pointing to the horizontal piece. So I've proposed that there was a piston or plump block mechanism that slid down the northern pump shaft, compressing the water into the system. So it was a piston on the front end that caused the water level to raise inside the chambers. So if you click on the next slide, this horizontal piece was configured very, very intentionally. And you have to look at every single minute detail of the pyramids because this angled piece is the stop block that was specifically designed to cushion that piston mechanism when it comes into its final resting position. So you can see here, the piston mechanism, when it reaches the bottom of the pump shaft, has to have a housing 
where there's clearance for the bottom of this pump or this piston to slide into that position. And you can see the configuration in the stones in the wall. You see behind that, that black line, that stone is literally indicating the movement of that pump block. There is communication encoded in the Egyptian pyramids. And by reading the configuration of these stones, you can retrieve functionality from the structure. And this is one of the biggest discoveries that I made in the, the Northern pump shaft is this tiny little horizontal piece. So they could have left that square, right? At a sharp 90 degree angle, but it would have been smashed to pieces. Every time that piston mechanism comes into its resting place, the thing would have been beaten to pieces. So they flattened it out intentionally. And this is an original part of the design feature of the structure that is an indication of the function of that northern pump shaft. Awesome. And you can keep keep on rolling. <laughs> All right. Now, so on to the Ooh, step pyramid. I just pyramid. watched The Mummy last night with the crazy oh, per Beatles. Perfect timing, yeah. So on to methane gas, the step pyramid of Saqqara, and the deification of cattle in the ancient world. So we... And scarabs. Yeah, yeah scarabs, right? And I'm going to explain that as well. So again, we're talking about these esoteric symbols from the dynastic Egyptian religion that have an older lineage that is related to the production of chemicals. Okay, so the deification of cattle in the ancient world. All of these ancient civilizations worship cattle as their gods. Okay, so we have the astrological interpretation, constellation Taurus. Okay, that's fine. But let's propose that they were using cattle manure which is how we make methane gas and biogas reactors now, cattle manure provides the anaerobic bacteria that initiate the methane gas production. So if cattle and cattle manure was utilized to produce this sacred chemical, it would certainly make a lot more sense for the deification of this animal being overwhelmingly significant to this ancient civilization because it was critical in the production of methane that was critical for the survival of their society. So again, this is kind of an alternative interpretation of these symbols. And then you look at the scarab, for example. This is something in the dynastic Egyptian religion that they say is supposed to be a symbol of the rising and setting sun, the god Kepri, and the solar cycle of birth and resurrection. That never made any sense to me why a desert cockroach pushing around a ball of shit is supposed to represent the glorious rising sun. That never made any sense to me. But if you look at the operative behavior of the scarab beetle, what is it doing? It's collecting dung, which is the first step in the process for the production of methane using cattle dung. Can we can we talk about the importance of methane, then ammonia, and what else ammonia is used on used on for some context? Like, why oh yeah, is yeah. It, why so, is it so important to survival? You know, so methane is an incredibly useful fuel that can be used for all sorts of domestic applications. Boiling water, lighting, cooking, all of these sorts of applications, right? Critical domestic applications. But methane also has a whole bunch of other applications in terms of creating other chemicals. Methane is a syngas that can be used to harvest hydrogen. So hydrogen is super important in making other chemicals. So we also have the serapium at Saqqara, which is supposed to be the burial place for these bulls. So I've proposed that the step pyramid of Saqqara was designed to produce methane gas, not produce, but collect. And if you click to the next slide, I can show you kind of how this thing is working. 
So the original configuration of the step pyramid, this thing went through an evolution of reconstruction. Originally, it was a single level platform that you can see in yellow. And the only thing inside of this structure was the main reaction chamber, an inlet shaft, and an outlet shaft. And that outlet shaft goes all the way to the southern pit at the other end of the step pyramid complex. And I talked to some archaeologists on site that are aware of this shaft system that I have proposed. So it does exist. They just haven't found it yet. Um, they know about it because they've done LIDAR scans of that area, and they've found all sorts of shaft systems running underneath this structure. There is a maze of miles and miles of tunnels underneath the step pyramid. But if you look at the configuration of a modern biogas digester, it has the exact same original configuration as the inside of the step pyramid. You have an inlet shaft going in one end, an outlet shaft going in the other end, and then your central reaction chamber in the middle. So I'm proposing that they were using a slurry of agricultural material, cattle manure, and water inside of this reactor, and the methane gas was being collected out of the top. Originally, it would have been collected out of the top of this mastaba platform, where there was a valve or something, where they could have extracted the gases, collected it in bladders, whatever they were doing with it. But it's an incredibly useful chemical for a whole bunch of different applications. So it would have just been the gas at that point that they were extracting. So, because I'm just that's where all those vases were, right? I'm wondering if there's a reason for all those to be there. Yeah. So they they found a whole bunch of burial related stuff in some of the ancillary shafts inside of the step pyramid, which is kind of evidence that this structure has been repurposed by the dynastic Egyptians when they came back, resettled in the area, and started repurposing these things as burials. They never found the burial of Djoser. The container in the center of this reactor is empty. They never found anything inside of that container. And Djoser's burial was never found here. So again, to propose that this is the burial of Djoser, there's not really any evidence of that specifically. But again, you see these pots and stuff that they found. A lot of that stuff is heirlooms. You know, well, that have well been, let's 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 yeah. assume like Ben was talking about. He he's he's uh, actually he just came out with a video about the um, how accurate some of these uh, granite vases are have been made, right? Like within thousands of an inch, you know, in flatness and perpendicularity. And those are the ones that they apparently found. Yeah, yeah, like the piece that Darren stole from Egypt. Whoa. Um, I bought this in a shop. Oh yeah, the. Uh, they supposedly they found like 40,000. So can let's assume speculation wise. Like, I'm telling you right they, now, though, just for the record, I can definitely see the machine marks on this thing. I know, but they're not supposed to be like, let's assume that they're pre-dynastic. Like when yeah, this thing was created. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, it's pre-dynastic. So like, what, what, you know, why would they use these machined vases, like 40,000 of them in this area? Like there must, there could be a connection there, right? Maybe they're using it to carry something to this mixing pit or sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe yeah, they're for, um, for sure. Knows? I mean, it sounds so like also, a great recycling. That's what I think. Some too, sort right? of a storage unit around the thing or these there granite, granite things. So, so on the Western side of the step pyramid complex, there's a large silo that it, it basically looks like a mound of dirt. You wouldn't even know it's there unless you knew it was there. This silo contains storage units. It's empty chambers. It's like a long hallway with all of these empty chambers on each side. Other researchers have proposed that that was a storage silo for grain. 
Okay. I thought this was a burial site and we were burying our pharaohs here. Why do we have all this grain storage? Well, part of the slurry involves agricultural material. So you literally have in this complex, the production of all of your raw materials. And we actually discovered stones that have images of what looks to be a windmill on these stones that were excavated from inside of the step pyramid. When they did the excavation, they took out tons of quartz crystal, calcite crystal, buried it in the northern pit, and it's all buried under sand now. But there's these blocks that have what look to be windmills. And so those windmills were probably used in the processing of that grain, which was a part of this agricultural slurry. Wow. Interesting. So you can keep on rolling. Next slide, Jamie. All right. Yeah. So this is, again, just kind of moving on. So it all starts with the step pyramid of Saqqara and the production of methane gas. That methane gas is transported in one of these underground shaft systems to the red pyramid of Dashur, where that methane is transformed into ammonia. And this is just one of my favorite diagrams of the red pyramid because it shows all of the shafts. There's a shaft or a pit at the bottom of the pump shaft. There's a, sh a pit in the primary chamber, and there's a pit on the southern wall of the secondary chamber. And you can't access that area now because that staircase, they built that staircase going up there. So you can't, but there's a hole down there, which I propose is the drain line for draining the first two chambers. And you can go to the next one. You can sneak in there. It's full of bats. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, I've, cl I've crawled under there. Okay. So now Moving on to the chemical analysis of the red pyramid staining. And this comes from a group in Russia called the Acida Project. Shout out to the Acida Project for trusting me to release this information because they kept the secret for about 15 years. And they've seen my work, been following me. You know, I, I reached out to them because I knew that they did this chemical analysis and we were exchanging information. So this is an electron microscopy scan of samples of that staining material from inside of the red pyramid. And the first couple of scans were rather innocuous, but you can see down here at the bottom of this first one, this sample has 50% copper. So that's, that's pretty unusual to have that high of a concentration of copper on the surface of these reaction chambers. So go to the next one. What does weath mean? What is what? Weath, weight. Uh, yeah, so this is, yeah, this is translated from Russian, right? So all their yeah. stuff is like, you know, the, the translations are bad, but yeah, so that's the weight or the, the total amount of grams, you know, in the, the percentage and then the atomic weight of the, the atoms in the sample. Yeah. So if you look at this one, 89% of this sample is zinc. Again, way, way too high to be naturally occurring in a sample of limestone. And these samples, so they took about 40 different samples from inside of the Red Pyramid. Some were taken from the pit, which are samples of the core masonry of the structure, because that pit is literally the inside of the pyramid. They also took samples from the surface of the chamber walls. And this is what we're looking at here. So we have copper, zinc, go to the next one. Okay, so now we have iron. This isn't any real surprise because everybody has proposed that the staining in the red pyramid is related to iron oxide. That's where these stones get their red color, but we're seeing a pretty significant concentration of iron on the surface of these chambers. And if you go to the next one, so this next one is antimony, 50% by weight antimony. 
on the chamber walls. And antimony is a very unusual metal. It is one of the first metals that was being studied and extracted by medieval alchemists. Yeah, it's a super important one for the alchemy, right? Oh, it's huge. And the dynastic Egyptians were using antimony for a variety of pharmaceuticals, cosmetics, et cetera. They made eyeliner, they made chem- you know, pharmaceuticals, et cetera. But again, we're finding antimony in 50% concentration on the surface of the chamber walls. And people will sit here and tell you that it's bats, that this is bat urine. And that is the most infuriating thing that I have ever heard because it's such nonsense and it is literally intended to distract people. Oh, just go in there real quick. That's bat piss, right? So don't spend too much time in there looking at everything because you're just smelling the bat piss, right? Nothing to see here, ladies and gentlemen. When people go to Dashur, they are literally in and out of that structure in two minutes. And as you guys know, the Egyptologist guides can't go with you inside the structure. So they send them in, they walk in there, walk out. Oh, it smells like piss in here. Let's get out of here, right? But this is literally the smoking gun of all of these structures that has the most evidence of its original function. So, so there, but these three great examples of, uh, of a majority of certain chemicals, um, are they all from the same uh, area in the red pyramid or are they in different areas? Like, are you seeing a trend? Yep. Like, yeah. How does, how does, Oh, that so work? I did, I'll get to it. I have it in later oh, on okay, the presentation. Okay, okay. Okay. So this particular batch of samples is just, an electron microscopy scan of stuff that was taken from the surface. And I have of another the, of slide the same in area here. of the same area. Yeah. So this is all from the same area. So we're looking at what's on the surface in one area, but all 40 different samples have somewhat different composition. And I'll show you that here in just a minute. So if you go on to the next one, it keeps getting more and more interesting. So what do we have down here at the bottom? Thorium, 40% concentration. And that should have your attention if you're familiar with what thorium is. And you should be asking yourself, how the hell did this possibly get inside of one of the Egyptian pyramids? And where were they getting access to this material, which is one of the most remarkable discoveries that I've produced to date? So we got copper, iron, zinc, antimony, and thorium. Click to the next one. So this is one of the full micro element compositions of the sample. So they did multiple different tests. They did scanning electron microscopy. They did mass spectrometry. They did, um, uh, what was the name of the other one? It skips the top of my head right now, but they did multiple different types of chemical analysis on these things. Um, X-ray fluorescence is the third one. So they did multiple different types. This is from a mass spectrometry analysis. And you can see down here in the bottom left corner, strontium. So there's an extremely high content of strontium in this limestone, which after a bunch of research, this is just naturally occurring. In some very unique types of limestone, strontium can substitute the calcium in the calcium carbonate lattice of limestone, and it's strontium carbonate instead of calcium carbonate. So this is a very unique type of limestone that has calcium, strontium, and iron oxides in the stone itself. But there's also all sorts of trace radioactive minerals in the samples. All of this stuff can be explained as background elements. However, the concentration of some of the stuff on the surface is way too high because this is like tiny, tiny fractions of an amount. Like this is 0.01 of a gram per ton for lucium, for example. All background trace elements. 
There's also molybdenum in here. There's uranium. There's cesium, gadolinium, like all of these very rare exotic metals are in this sample. But again, it's just background stuff, not really much to see there. So if you move on to the next one, the surface concentration is what is of interest. So we have a sealing layer that was applied to the surface of these chamber walls, not only as a watertight seal, but also as a semi-catalytic coating compound. And I have another chemical analysis here in just a minute of a chemically resistant coating compound that was discovered on the exterior of the red pyramid. The entire red pyramid was painted with a chemically resistant coating compound. And we'll get to that here in just a second. But this is the full breakdown of all, I think there's 20 or 30 different samples in this particular slide, but all of these were taken from different locations. And I just did a video on my channel show it because they did great documentation. The ACIDA project is one of the most exceptional research organizations that existed. And they take pictures of each one of these sites. So you can literally see what the material looks like at each one of these samples. Some are from the core, some are from the surface, some are from the pump shaft. Then there's varying differences in all of these samples, which I explain in depth. And this was one of the most exhausting episodes that I've ever done was analyzing all of this data and trying to come up with a comprehensive explanation that address, because nobody even attempts to do this, right? This type of stuff is not being discussed by any other channel out there. And I'm the only one that has proposed a function for all of these structures. Because you would think the area underneath it would be where sort of the remnants or the, the bits of unused or sediment would, would gather, it would be different there than in other areas of the chamber. Yeah, so there's there's a lot higher concentration of iron oxides in the pit than there are in some of the areas in the chamber. But we also find on the chamber walls, for example, there's lead, which there is no lead in the pit. So again, there's different chemicals on each one of the chamber walls, which could be an indication of the functionality because both of these chamber, all three chambers had different chemical reactions. So if you have slightly different sealing compounds in each chamber, it would certainly make a lot of sense in terms of the functionality of the structure. So you can go to the next one. Okay, yeah, so these are the metals that were found on the surface of the chamber walls that appear in way too high of a concentration to be naturally occurring. So we had copper, we had zinc, we had iron, we had antimony, and we had thorium. So I wanted to find evidence of the existence of all of these metals in Egypt, because I had to be able to prove that they could have harvested these minerals and had access to this stuff. So if you go to the next one, this is literally the first slide that I ever made for any presentation on my YouTube channel. And this is probably three years down the road where I'm investigating the thorium and the research took me full circle back to this first slide i'm getting goosebumps all over my body just talking like oh man like from the top of my head my whole body just lit up wow. talking about this um oh man so the chem right so the name of my book is the land of chem c-h-e-m which is a play on words for the original name of egypt the land of chem k-h-e-m and we know that our modern words for alchemy and chemistry have their etymology in the word chem. 
So according to the conventional story, the chem refers to the black alluvial soil around the Nile River. I have also interpreted that chem or blackness as the negredo stage of the alchemical reaction process, that blackness, the chem, from which your volatile substances are extracted, right? The calcination, putrefication, blackness stage that goes to the white and then the red. So that is an indication that this is a reference to chemical reactions. So I started digging into this word chem and the production of thorium. And if you go to the next one, so we also did, not me, but I found chemical analysis of metal from the saw cuts. So they took some tubular drills and they took some saw cuts, took a chemical analysis of the material that was in there, and they found two different things. These saw blades are not made from copper. They are made from arsenical copper, which is an alloy of 90% copper and 10% arsenic, which completely changes the properties of the metal. That, that is one of the biggest travesties of the explanation of copper. It's an alloy and nobody ever talks about the arsenic part. But if you add a small amount of arsenic into your copper, which was actually naturally occurring in the copper mines from which the Egyptians were extracting, arsenical copper was huge in the ancient world. And everybody's like, oh, they can't cut with copper. They can't cut with copper. Well, it wasn't fucking copper. It was arsenical copper which completely changes the property of the metal, making it much more durable and absolutely capable of cutting stone. However, the metal blade is not what does the cutting. It's an abrasive slurry or compound, and even modern masons still use this. Abrasive slurries are what does the cutting. So they also found ilmenite crystal, which is a crystal that contains iron oxide and titanium microparticles. This ilmenite crystal is also prevalent in the Egyptian black sands, which you can see here. And these black sands are found all over the Mediterranean coast of Egypt. This is the true chem of ancient Egypt, because in these black sands, there's not only ilmenite, which has the titanium and iron microparticles that they were using for the abrasive slurries. But if you click to the next slide, they're currently using this Egyptian black sand. And this is where it's all located, all over the Nile Delta. So it was a huge and prolific mineral all across the ancient world in Egypt. They were using this stuff to render that ilmenite crystal and also thorium. If you click to the next slide. So these black sands contain a whole bunch of different minerals, monazite, zircon, rutile, magnetite, garnet, all of these things have rare exotic metal oxides. So whether it's titanium oxide, thorium oxide, uranium oxide, all of these rare exotic radioactive metals are in these Egyptian black sands. So this was just part of my research process in justifying the presence of thorium inside of these chambers because I had to connect it to a mineral that was available in Egypt. So they could have absolutely been processing these mineral sands to extract the ilmenite, the titanium microparticles, whatever microparticles. So we'll get to the Giza Plateau. They're producing acidic chemicals. Acidic chemicals are used for metallurgy, which is exactly what we're talking about here. Do you think they use that slurry and combine it with vibration, sound, or anything else, some sort of resonance? Because um, just with these with these copper 
copper tools making drilling those. I mean, there was some pretty big, there's some pretty big accurate stuff and some weird smoothing of the stones in these unfinished sure. areas that I wanted to ask you about too. Like, have you made Have you found any evidence that would seem like they made a chemical that could soften the granite? So they found evidence of microspherules on these stones, little tiny, small circles. I believe that that was a polishing compound that they made to not soften the stone because that's that's not really how acids work. If, it, if an acid is applied to stone, it's going to dissolve it. It's not going to soften it. It's going to react and produce hydrogen and dissolve the stone away. However, if you have a polishing compound that has all these tiny little microparticles, those tiny metallic microparticles can essentially polish. It's basically what we do today in any sort of metal polishing. You have a slurry that has microparticles, and that's actually what buffs down your stone. So I do agree that they absolutely would have had polishing compounds, finishing compounds, et cetera, to further process these stones. And I've suggested that they were using gear ratio machines to do the cutting. So if you have a machine that has a high gear ratio, one turn to 50 turns or one turn to 500 turns, you don't need electricity. You don't need any sort of magical, ancient, lost, high technology. All you need is a water wheel and a gear ratio machine that can turn one cut into 500 cuts. And then all of a sudden you have your core drills, all that kind of stuff operating very, very easily with simple physics. And it does not require lost, ancient, high technology. There's an artifact from the Roman time called the Hierapolis saw, which is a water wheel powered saw that had multiple saw blades. That's cutting through these stones. And if you want to Google that, they have great images of this thing. So the Romans took everything they knew from the Egyptians. And I 100% believe they had machines like this at the quarry sites because they had water coming into the quarry sites. They had channels to transport the blocks. This is another episode that I've done on my channel, which is building the Great Pyramid with water and how they used floats to float the stones to the construction site directly from the quarry. So they use these machines to cut through the stones. The stones go on a float. They float them directly to the construction site. How, how heavy would, what would the max weight of those be on? on yeah. So they've done experiments that tested the buoyancy properties of Lebanese cedar. So Lebanese cedar was critical in the ancient world. You see inside of the step pyramid, there's this Lebanese cedar and they talk all in the ancient world of Lebanese cedar. You can absolutely use wood to float stones. And they've done tests with, you know, configurations of wooden floats. They've also put bladders and stuff like this where they've, and I have this all on my, my channel as well. What it is absolutely feasible. And like you see 500 all of these, ton, like 500 ton, like how, how heavy can you do that? Uh, so I don't remember the specifics yeah, off yeah. the top of my head, but one thing to keep in mind is there is an extreme over exaggeration of the weight of the stones in Egypt. For example, the great pyramid the biggest stones are at the bottom, but as you go to the top, those stones are small. They're like a foot by a foot. So you're not lifting 50 or hundred ton stones all the way up into the air. They're lifting the small stones into the air. So there, and this is a very, very interesting video. Uh, I, don't on my channel, I, I don't know if I agree with that. The casing stones on the, uh, the one that where the casing stones are broken apart on the top of the pyramid, they're huge still. I mean, those they're granite casing stones and they're massive. Where? 
I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you. I got a couple of pictures of them. I'll, I'll try and pull okay. them up. Yeah. It was on one of the three main pyramids, I think. Or was it even? Uh, no, no. I think it was. I think it was on Giza Plateau. Yeah. So like Menkara, for example, does have granite on the lower casings of stones. But again, if you look at the, the bottom, the biggest stones are at the bottom and yeah. they get progressively smaller all the way you go to the top. So that was one of the ways that the construction process was made easier. You're not, again, you're not lifting the hundred ton stuns 400 feet up in the air. And if you want to go to the next one, I forget what I even have in this presentation. Oh yeah, here we go. The bent pyramid. So the bent pyramid of Dashur, I have proposed that this was designed to convert the ammonia solution from the red pyramid into a chemical called ammonium bicarbonate, which is a solid compound fertilizer. So having ammonia as an aqueous solution is very, very useful, but it's certainly more applicable for storage, transportation, et cetera, if you can convert it into a solid compound chemical. And I believe that's exactly what was happening inside of the Bent Pyramid. And as we were talking before about the sliding stone valves, you have two moving stone valves here inside the Bent Pyramid which I believe were operated using a hydraulic press mechanism that is housed in the satellite pyramid. So if you look at the configuration of the exterior of these structures, anytime there's a pyramid with sliding stone valves, there is also a satellite pyramid located within the external reservoir because the satellite pyramid uses the reservoir as a water source in the same way that the internal reaction chambers utilize that water. And you guys have been inside the Bent Pyramid, right? Yeah. So in this primary reaction chamber, the one at the very top, you know that platform in the middle that you go and stand on? Yep. Oh, I okay. was, was going to ask you about that. The big, yeah. the big cube type thing? Or? So this, the platform that you can see over here, that is a dynastic Egyptian addition to the structure. When you go inside the primary chamber, you can literally see the delineation between the megalithic stone masonry and the tiny stone blocks that are making up that platform. And the interior of that reaction chamber is completely eroded. And the platform was constructed later inside of that chamber. And it's using completely different styles of masonry. And this is one of the clearest day examples that these structures were repurposed as whatever they were doing with the dynastic Egyptian civilization burials. But it's so very, do, very clear. When do you think these were all, all done then? Like the majority of this chemical stuff was happening. Yeah. So good question. So the timeline that I propose in the book pushes it back to kind of 10,000 BC, which is the, the big area of interest right now. Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, we're talking about the end of the Atlas ice age. So I propose that there was a civilization in North America that had this knowledge of chemistry. And one of the themes that I propose in the book, that from the perspective of an onlooker, the knowledge of chemistry would appear to be magic. And we have all of these stories in history about this ancient civilization, the gods that had all this magic. Well, if you look at a chemical reaction and I take one clear solution and another clear solution and I pour them together and it turns red. Or if I take a bunch of metal particles and I light them on fire and 
crazy green and yellow and blue flame is sparking up out of my hand. So that would appear to be magic from someone that was not initiated into the science of chemistry. So that's where we get all this mythology of these gods arriving with magic. I believe that they were refugees from this North American civilization that reestablished themselves in Europe and upper Africa. And they started to build these structures like Newgrange, and we'll talk about Newgrange and the passage chamber structures of Ireland here in just a moment, as infrastructure projects to reestablish their civilization. And there's a time period in the Sahara from 8500 BC to 5300 BC called the Saharan wet period. And this was a time of prolific rainfall, agricultural development, and the domestication of cattle in the Upper Eastern Sahara. And this is the time frame that I propose the Egyptian pyramids were built and in operation. So it's approximately 3,000 years. And at the end of this 3,000-year period, this is where we see the desiccation of the Sahara, right? It transforms from this rainy, lush agricultural environment back into a desert. And that is where we see the Narmer palette and the reunification of Upper and Lower Egypt the beginning of dynastic Egyptian civilization circa 3500 BC, because they were coming in from all of these areas that were spread out around the upper Sahara, and they were moving back to the Nile River because it was a desert again, and that was the only area where there was water. So they had to relocate the civilization back to the Nile River. They began repurposing these ancient structures. They still had the knowledge of chemistry but it just became small scale chemistry. And we'll talk about that regarding Egyptian blue and some other cool stuff. here. Yeah, in a sec. yeah, definitely Egyptian blue. I'm really interested in what you have to say about that, but back to the timeline thing a little bit. So how, how do we account for all these unfinished sort of from the megalithic standpoint, like the small pyramid on, on Giza, yeah. the, Ser- the Serapium, um, the, the, the big, uh, the temple behind uh, um, Abydos, um, right. Where yeah. They, where, you know, like there's these things that just seem crazy that they would be unfinished. Right. So like Menkari, the, the third pyramid on the Giza plateau, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely unfinished. And the reason for that. So I've also kind of suggested that there could have been and there were multiple cataclysms right around 5000 B.C. There was the Black Sea flood. There were earthquakes. There were all sorts of natural disasters that were occurring around that time frame, which could have brought these structures out of operation, either from damage or flooding or whatever it may be. They went offline, and then the knowledge was lost over a couple of generations on how to get them operating again. I've also proposed that these structures were critically placed on the globe because they are harnessing the Earth's electromagnetic energy field. There's also been proposed that there were shifts in the Earth's electromagnetic energy field, which if it was at one space when they were built originally and the electromagnetic field moves, well, then the structures aren't going to be as functional anymore because you're not receiving that energy from the Earth. So there's a number of different things that could have caused these things to go out of operation. And again, this is coinciding with the beginning of the dynastic Egyptian civilization right around 3500. And and it just because I guess just because that one pyramid isn't finished doesn't mean that the other ones weren't functioning for a while, right? I guess right. And that's that's kind of what I've proposed in terms of the internal chambers of the Menkari period. It does appear that there was some functionality built into that structure. It appears that the older part of the because Menkara that pyramid was also rebuilt. 
there was a fully formed pyramid inside of that thing with the original reaction chambers. Oh, that's interesting. And so then that, they came back whole, and then yeah. they rebuilt it. And then they carved that primary chamber. So the, the oldest one is the lower chamber that's made of granite. Oh, okay. They say that during the reconstruction of that one, they built the secondary chamber. So there was already a fully formed pyramid inside that thing. They came back, wanted to make it bigger, and they just never finished the final end of the project. So you spoke about the, the importance of the location on the globe. What about the location of, and I think you have a slide. I, I, I shouldn't have looked, but I snuck a piece. <laughs> it's all good. I was, I, had a, I was just giving shit. Yeah. I had a look of the, of the, the obelisk with all, that's where all the calcite bulls are and stuff. Correct. Abu's we'll, here. But, or but, Abu that, but that's also, these are all like, I didn't realize it till we were there and we were at the red pyramid and you could see one way the bent or I might get the names wrong, but yeah. then you could see Giza that way. And then, oh yeah, and then from the, from where that massive obelisk was supposed to be, everything's all in line from Giza Correct. to the bent, to the, to the step and yeah. the obelisk. Do you they, know that why was, that, that was would on be, purpose? Or, and are they all connected underground then the, the, the whole system? So you, when you're looking at the Eastern side of the Nile river, I believe that that or Western side, rather, that was a huge industrial manufacturing complex that literally started all the way down at um, Abu Simbel and went all the way up the side of the Nile River. So it was a huge industrial processing complex. And all of these structures are absolutely connected with subterranean shafts. And Yusuf talks about how his father used to run from shaft to shaft, from pyramid to pyramid underground. Everybody talks about this stuff. And the connection on the landscape is an indication of the connection of the structures because you're looking at the step pyramid. You can see the red pyramid in the distance. So that's the next step. You're at the red pyramid. You can see the bent pyramid. And even in the geometry of the bent pyramid, the red pyramid is literally sitting on top of the bent pyramid. It's the exact same geometry. And again, this is an example of the communication encoded in these structures. They're showing you that what was happening in the red pyramid was then transferred over to the bent pyramid. Awesome. Is that little block the there? Is that like uh, this thing right here? Is that where that little piece is like held up with a piece of wood? Yeah, yeah. Climbing? So yeah, there, yeah, there yeah. was. Someone a piece was of climbing wood on top of that motherfucker when we were in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, so this whole thing, you see the block behind that stone right there? So yeah. there's a square block. Yeah, you're, you're on it right now. This one. Yeah. So that's a stop block, right? Which is literally an indication that that valve was moving. So there would be no need to engineer and configure that stop block at the top of the housing if that valve wasn't moving up in that direction. It's literally a stop block to prevent it from moving too far up the housing. Interesting. So this is another indication. All of these small details are incredibly relevant. And you have to imagine some mason had to cut that stone, right? So it's, a, it's not just like, oh, hey, throw this in there. You know, somebody actually had to go in there and do that. So for them to do that, it had to have some sort of function. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. And conventional archaeology calls it a stop block. So what was <laughs> it stopping, right? If these things are only intended to move in one direction one time, what was it stopping? It was stopping it from moving too high back up the housing. Interesting. So now on to the Giza Plateau and the Great Pyramid of Giza. 
which I have proposed was designed to produce a dilute solution of sulfuric acid, which is slightly different. So Christopher Dunn is saying that there's hydrochloric acid inside of the queen's chamber and that he discovered hydrated zinc inside of the queen chamber's shafts. Well, there's a couple of details that people always forget about those queen chamber shafts. The shafts leading out of the queen's chamber were originally sealed with stone. Those were not open to the internal chamber, which Christopher Dunn completely ignores that fact in his theory. I've also never seen a chemical analysis of this hydrated zinc that they discovered produced anywhere. So that's a little dubious for me that he says that there's hydrated zinc and they found this stuff. Well, where is the chemical analysis? Where is the paper that shows this discovery? And he also completely ignores the fact that these two shafts coming out of the queen's chamber, those holes were steel with stone. So there was no way for anything to pour through those shafts into that chamber, which is what he is suggesting. So long story short, I've proposed that this entire structure was designed to produce sulfuric acid in a very dilute concentration. The subterranean chamber being a pump mechanism to pump water up into the internal reaction chamber system. And there's a lot of people that have proposed that the Great Pyramid subterranean chamber is a hydraulic uh, or a ram pump. And they suggest that the Great Pyramid could have been some sort of water pump. That's great. And, you know, this lower section, that could have been the original function of just the subterranean chamber way, way back in the ancient time is just a water pump to pump water from the subterranean aquifers up to the surface so that they could get water. Pretty simple function. And later on, they could have built this entire pyramid on top of it to start integrating that functionality in the rest of the reaction process. So it would take me quite a while to explain how the chemical reaction operates inside of this chamber. So I'll leave that for people that want to check out the YouTube channel. Um, but it's, it's really, really fascinating. And one of the things to keep in mind that I'll talk about here in the moment is the red granite. So the Great Pyramid is the first structure that starts to integrate red granite into the reaction chambers. And this is incredibly relevant because red granite can produce ultrasound. So now we're getting into acoustics and resonance and all of this other stuff that we'll, we'll talk about that here in just a minute. So go ahead to the next one. All right, yeah, so this is a little GIF that kind of shows the modern production for sulfuric acid. And if you extrapolate this configuration to the configuration of the Great Pyramid, so your burner up here on the top left is your king's chamber. And it has two air intake shafts because you need air inside of that chamber for the combustion cycle. Your converter here in the center is your antechamber. Those sulfur dioxides are drawn through the converter into your absorption tower or your grand gallery. So the grand gallery was designed to mix the sulfur trioxide and water inside of the grand gallery. And the first time that I was inside of the grand gallery, there's oxidation stains all over the top of the gallery. And the entire thing looks like it's been heated to an extremely high temperature. Well, dissolving sulfur trioxide into water is an extremely exothermic reaction. There was massive amounts of heat inside of this chamber 
which is clearly evident. Anybody that's gone inside these things, man, what the hell was it? looks like inside of an oven that was literally baked. And there's all sorts of chemical oxidation staying on the top. Then that solution was extracted from the queen's chamber through an extraction shaft that multiple different researchers have proposed. And if you go to the next slide, so there's a group that did Doppler radar tomography of the Great Pyramid. So they used Doppler radar to take scans of the Great Pyramid from space. And if you click to the next one, they made some pretty interesting discoveries. So they're using this Doppler radar, scanning the Great Pyramid, and they discovered the potential for all of these chambers that are yet undiscovered inside of the Great Pyramid. Specifically, that is relevant to my theory. If you look here at the bottom left, they're doing a tomography of the queen's chamber. And you can see that red line that comes out of the bottom of the queen's chamber. There's a shaft that goes out of the niche, below the niche in the queen's chamber. And that's indicated here in red in the bottom right. And that's coming out of the queen's chamber. And if you go to the next slide. So all that being said, with this particular scan, take this with a huge grain of salt. So one of the biggest um, kind of caveats of this research article is discussing the capabilities of Doppler radar to scan structures from space. So that's one of the reasons for this article is they're evaluating the capabilities of the technology. And I think that they have made some tremendous leaps of the imagination in interpreting the scans compared to these new models. So it's a huge stretch of the imagination. If you look at the actual scans and you compare them to these models, it's a bit of a stretch. However, it is an indication that there is still a bunch of stuff inside of the Great Pyramid that we have not found out yet. Specifically, this collection shaft coming out of the, the Queen's Chamber, because that is one of the areas of the scans that does look like it's fairly legitimate. And if you click to the next, so this, you see this big green box above the Grand Gallery? Yep. So that is the void that everyone is talking about that is located above the Grand Gallery. And this is a secondary verification that that chamber does possibly exist. And I have an idea for the function of this chamber. It's related to that exothermic production in the, the Grand Gallery. I won't spoil that yet. I haven't covered it yet on the channel, but there's, there's a function for this chamber. And if it does exist, it's in the exact right space to do what it was doing. So if you go to the next one, this is their proposed new model of the Great Pyramid. So there appears to be a whole bunch of stuff inside of this structure that we just haven't discovered yet. So pretty interesting. Again, I take all this with a grain of salt because again, it's, it's new technology. And again, one of the reasons for this research article is discussing the capabilities of the technology, but pretty interesting nonetheless. And it does show that there's a lot of stuff still to be discovered about the Great Pyramid. Definitely. So if you go to the next one, hell, I forgot what I even have in here. Okay, so Central Pyramid of Giza. So I have proposed that the Central Pyramid of Giza was designed to produce a dilute solution of hydrochloric acid. And there's a number of reasons why I believe that to be the case. They discovered deposits of sodium chloride all inside of the primary reaction chamber, which would have been part of the initial reactant 
used in the production of this hydrochloric acid. And again, Christopher Dunn says that there's hydrochloric acid inside of the Great Pyramid. Well, where is the hydrochloric acid coming from? So that is the proposition of my theory is that they were manufacturing acid solutions on the Giza Plateau that were mostly used for metallurgy. So you're actually asking about the applications of all of these chemicals. So methane is a great fuel for domestic purposes, et cetera. Ammonia is a fertilizer. It literally transformed our modern civilization and allowed us to have the population explosion that we've had in the 1900s was due to ammonia. So it's a great fertilizer, especially considering that there was much more arable farmland during this Saharan wet period. So they weren't just farming around the Nile River. Everybody's like, oh, well, why do they need fertilizer? The, the Nile River is the best place to farm in the world. Well, it wasn't just around the Nile River at that time. They were transforming the entire Upper Eastern Sahara into farmable land, which terraforming is one of the propositions that people have suggested regarding the Egyptian pyramids, but they were doing it with chemicals and transforming the landscape into an agricultural-based industrial scale civilization that's capable of building these structures. So in my most recent expedition, we made several discoveries during this last trip, like legitimate archeological discoveries. So at Abu Sir, I found that inlet shaft. Down in the Osiris shaft, we discovered deposits of iron oxide running over the container housings. And here inside of the central pyramid, Yusuf discovered iron oxide deposits in the core of the structure. So the pyramid is built on a mound of bedrock. And you guys have been on the Giza Plateau, and there's all of that iron oxide deposit all around the central pyramid. Well, if you go and look in that little excavated hole where it says Perse de Valours, so that's looking up into a hole that was excavated into the cavity of the core. And there's huge deposits of iron oxide all in that bedrock. So Yusuf found that, and I also discovered inside of the primary chamber that there's a huge vein of iron oxide that runs through that entire chamber. It goes from one wall all the way down the floor. So you know that area in the central pyramid that has all those blocks in the main chamber where the floor drops down? Yeah. That entire area was an iron oxide deposit hmm. that has been excavated from that chamber and then they put blocks back in place to cover it up. And I have a video on my channel that shows the moment of this discovery. And that vein of iron oxide dips down into that hole. And the entire inner chamber was sealed. The Great Pyramid and the Central Pyramid were internally sealed with a chemically resistant coating compound. And if you look at the archaeological record regarding the Central Pyramid, one of the two things that they did when they opened that structure to the public was go through and remove all of the ceiling compound off of the walls. This is documented in the historical record. And they removed the deposits of salt, which are two indications of the function of that structure. Huh. What did they do that for? Just so people wouldn't get sick or something? So again, they're, they're sanitizing like these things. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, so but for example, the Red Pyramid. That's why I call it the smoking gun, because no matter what you do to that structure, you cannot remove the evidence of what it was originally for. And that's why people don't go out to Dashur. You know, again, they're you know, going in there. That's just a, a bunch of bat piss in there. Don't spend too long in there. 
Don't pay attention to the configuration and try to learn anything. That's just bat piss. Get in and out of there quick. And that's why that's why I love going to Dashur, because those structures are not sanitized in the same way that the Giza Plateau is. You know, they go in, they clean the walls in there and all this kind of stuff. And there's a bunch of maintenance that goes into these things. And they're constantly doing renovations inside these things. So in 2017, the Central Pyramid was closed, but Menkara was open. Now they've closed Menkari and they've opened the central pyramid. So they go back and forth when they're cleaning and scraping stuff off the walls and all this kind of stuff. And it's again, just maintenance, but it's also, you know, what exactly are they trying to hide? Yeah. Obviously they're doing, they're exploring a little bit too. Cause you know, you go sure. into one and they'll have places uh, marked off like that big shaft in the uh, maybe the bent pyramid where, you know, we, some of our guys kind of snuck in and climbed up it, but I mean, Soon as they oh, yeah, found the, out, the Western soon as they found out they yeah. were doing we were doing that, they were running in to stop us. And yeah, it was pretty serious not to explore where they don't want you to explore. Right, right. And that's one what generally speaking, when I go to Egypt, I try to fly under the radar. You know, I'm a I'm a tourist, you know, I'm not like going out and actively, you know, drawing stuff or pretending to do research. You know, you got to fly under the radar. And I'm there to enjoy my vacation. And as far as they know, I'm just a tourist there for the ride. And that's really how I do it. You know, I just kind of looking around and, and taking observations while you're also just doing tour kind of stuff. Because as soon as you try to do research, somebody's going to be on your ass, deleting stuff from your phone, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next here? Well, I have no idea. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Surprise, okay. So now on to Newgrange and the passage chamber structures of Ireland which according to conventional history, predate the construction of the pyramids. So let's say we have this civilization fleeing from North America. They arrive in Ireland, Europe, Africa, and they start building these infrastructure projects. So if you click to the next slide, this is just an image of two different chemicals, ferrous sulfate and white phosphorus. And phosphorus is a very useful chemical weapon. And there's all these stories from ancient mythology of these fire swords and fire weapons that had to be kept submerged in oil. And as soon as you pull it out from the oil, the whole thing ignites. Well, that's exactly how white phosphorus operates. You have to keep it stored in oil because as soon as it's exposed to air, it starts to combust. And it's a very, very terrifying chemical weapon. So again, imagine from an ancient onlooker in a battle and you're seeing these flaming rockets of white phosphorus coming at you and it's killing all of your men and you're getting absolutely decimated by this magic ancient civilization the gods with the magic right it was just chemistry but it was incredibly useful as a chemical weapon so this is the curb stone of newgrange it is parked right out in front of the opening to the structure and after many many years of investigation i am the only person that has ever offered an interpretation of the symbols on this curbstone. And this curbstone is literally an instruction manual that shows you exactly how the structure operated. It is a rudimentary chemical reaction equation. And I will explain exactly what all these symbols mean. So you hear on the far left, you see these three on the far left? Yep. These ones right here. Yep. These no, so all the way on the far left, the three diamonds. Yep. These so inside of Newgrange, there are three ancillary chambers with basins. Inside of those basins are placed your initial reactant, which is iron disulfide. You see at the bottom of the stone, kind of these flowing lines moving in on the stone at the bottom. 
Those represent water flowing into the chamber system. Then you see these three large spirals and the spirals moving in from right to left. That indicates airflow moving in through the air intake and circulating inside of that triple chamber system. That is why there are three spirals there because it represents the moist airflow circulating inside of that triple chamber system. So Newgrange is an ancient heap leaching structure that was designed to produce ferrous sulfate, green vitriol, one of the most important chemicals from the alchemical repertoire. It can be used to make all sorts of different stuff. You can make hydro, uh, sulfuric acid. You can render metallic iron. It's a very useful soil conditioner and agricultural chemical. So it has multiple different applications that would have been critical to an ancient civilization that was trying to reestablish itself in a new area. So if you click to the next slide, this is the configuration of the curbstone as applied to the internal reaction chambers of Newgrange. Water flowed into the passage, airflow was moving. So there's an air intake out in front of this structure. They call it a roof box. What the hell is a roof box? It is literally an air intake shaft that is designed to funnel air into the structure. That air picks up water as it's flowing into the chamber and it's circulating moist airflow, which oxidizes the reactants inside of the chamber, converting them into ferrous sulfate. And if you click to the next slide, the best discovery that I have made, oh, so go back one, is the UV biohydrometal or go back one more. So on this stone, everybody knows that light shines into these structures for about a week around the winter solstice. I did some research and they currently use UV light to do the final conversion from iron two plus into iron three plus. And the UV biohydrometallurgical conversion is depicted on the far, you see this on the far right side of the stone, those rays coming from the top right up, up a little bit. There you go. So those are sun rays shining down on the solution that contains your iron two ions, converting them into those crystals. Those crystals right there are your product, crystalline ferrous sulfate or green vitriol. So this stone is literally depicting the chemical reaction sequence that was occurring inside of this structure. It is an instruction manual. Huh, interesting. So now onto calcium copper silicate, Egyptian blue, which I'm sure you guys have been inside the pyramid of Wanis and Saqqara. There's this Egyptian blue all over the place in Egypt. Okay. So and even Greece let's too, just talk right? about, I mean, and Greece, I mean, the main color. Oh, everywhere. Blue, yeah. All across the Mediterranean. Greece, right. Yeah. So they've done research into the production of this chemical, and it requires very stable reaction conditions of 900 degrees Celsius in a very stable reactor to be able to produce this stuff. And they've found that the consistency of the chemical is so good across the board that they still have no explanation for how this chemical was produced. So it's a very, very sophisticated molecule that conventional history would tell you is produced by accident. But literally, the volume of this paint that is existent in the ancient world is literal evidence 
of industrial scale production of chemicals. You can't just make one handful or one bowl and say, oh, that's enough for the entire Mediterranean, right? This shit is all over the place. So they had to be producing hundreds of thousands of gallons of this compound, industrial scale chemistry. And where is this in the historical record? It is non-existent. However, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, I always thought of it as crushed lapis lazuli or something like that. Yeah. So that's that's what they suggest. Right. So there's there's a bunch of articles that talk about how they think this stuff was made. And they say it was by accident by happening to crush up these minerals. And they got that it was made by accident, but they still can't produce it today as consistently as it was done back then. So this is one of those mysteries that, again, it's all just by accident. Nothing to see here. But it turns out that this is an incredibly sophisticated compound. So Egyptian blue, when exposed to light, also emits light in an infrared range. It is also a fluorescent pigment that emits a hundred times as many photons as it absorbs. So you blast this stuff with light and it is going to emit a hundred times more light than it absorbs and infrared energy. So this is an incredibly sophisticated molecule that conventional history would tell you is just a blue paint, nothing to see here. But again, modern chemical analysis and modern implementation of these materials is showing that it was remarkably functional. And if you click to the next one, they're also taking Egyptian blue, printing it in nano sheets and using it for anodes for lithium ion batteries. So this is the molecular structure of Egyptian blue. It is an incredibly sophisticated um, lattice framework. And this framework of the molecule is what gives it its functionality. So to imply that this was just produced on accident is an absolute travesty. And if you click to the next one, I think that's that article about Egyptian blue being used as as an anode for lithium ion batteries. And this research is being done by the Royal Society of Chemistry, which if you know anything about the Royal Society of Chemistry, it is literally the modern manifestation of the lineage of ancient alchemists that trace back to ancient Egypt. It is through that lineage that modern chemistry has developed. And the Royal Society of Chemistry is they're on point, man. If you look at some of their research articles, like these guys are in the know and they're looking at stuff that is specifically applicable from the ancient world. And they're just implementing it with modern science. I think this stuff is fascinating. So what were some of the uses, do you think, down underneath, like lighting stuff underneath or on the pyramids or like what would they be yeah, so who, painting so that, this? Because, I mean, if it emits infrared, far infrared light and and uh, fluorescent, I mean, that's unbelievable. It would. So it appears that this pigment was being used by the dynastic civilization because they're painting a lot of the murals and all this kind of stuff, perhaps by that time. They did not know that it was a functional material and they were just using it as regular old paint. Perhaps they discovered, you know, storehouses of this stuff or whatever it might be, and they're just using it as paint. That being said, imagine, you know, those um, lights that used to stick on your ceiling, those glow lights and all that kind of stuff. Well, if you think about the Pyramid of Wanese, all of the stars on the top of that chamber are painted with Egyptian blue, and this is a fluorescent paint. So even if it was just producing light, inside of these structures using fluorescence, that is a miraculous application for a paint that was being produced by this uncivilized civilization. (laughs) Exactly. They were literally getting free light using fluorescence. 
So pretty amazing stuff for just a paint that, you know, nothing to see here type deal. All right. Yeah. So now on to some pretty heavy stuff. So this is the red pyramid. And this is one of the casing stones that was taken off of the red pyramid that still is sitting over on the eastern side near that pyramidion. And you can see the red layer that is coated on top of this material. It's a very, very thick layer of coating compound or paint that was painted on the red pyramid. So this entire pyramid was sealed with this coating compound. And the ACIDA project did yet another chemical analysis of this material. And it turns out that it is a sulfur and silicon-based paint. And if you skip to the next one, again, once again, shout out to the Royal Society of Chemistry. So this is the chemical analysis of this coating compound. And you can see that there's oxygen, calcium, silicon, and sulfur are the majority components of this thing. And there's also some small bits of metal. There's aluminum oxide, iron oxide, magnesium oxide, some titanium oxides, but in very, very small concentrations. And if you skip to the next one, so the Royal Society, oh, this is awesome. I love this stuff. So this is modern analytical chemistry, literally showing you a vision of the ancient past. So all of these are different spectrums of light that are showing you the chemical composition of this paint. So you can see the oxygen, the sodium, the magnesium, the chlorine, the sodium, the silicon, all that stuff. So modern science is literally giving us insight to see what is in this material. And to me, this is, this is where it's at, man, for me, is, is using modern science and analytical chemistry to retrieve the secrets from the ancient world. It's, it's amazing that this is happening now. Well, it seems like it's untapped and it's at a, po at a point right now where the technology is advanced and, and you can do a lot, of, a lot more work with it. Right. And also keep in mind, these samples were taken illegally. Yeah. All of this stuff is very, very illegal. So I didn't take any samples. I have never taken any samples. I have never moved a grain of sand in Egypt except for walking on it. I'm just very fortunate to be in touch with these organizations that have already done the dirty work. So I'm just reporting this stuff. And you're exactly right where now the technology that we have now has finally caught up enough where we can start to reverse engineer these things and look back and apply some of these modern sciences to this stuff. So anyway, this is just a further breakdown of the chemical analysis. And if you go to the next slide, so the Royal Society of Chemistry was doing research on a process for coating surfaces with a copolymer made from sulfur and dicyclopentadiene. So dicyclopentadiene is a waxy molecule, but you could very easily substitute that for silicon, which is exactly what we find in this coating compound. So replace dicyclopentadiene with silicon, and you have a copolymer made from sulfur and silicon that is, so it's, um, let me read this here. The reaction between sulfur and silicides was optimized, et cetera, et cetera. The material was rendered insoluble and resistant to acid and solvents. So this is a chemically resistant sealing compound that has been applied to the exterior of the structures. They also found that the coating was repairable when surface struck. So scratches in the surface, all you have to do is heat this material and it self repairs. Wow. So it is a remarkably functional material. That is painted on the so imagine how much paint you have to, i just painted my deck and i had to use three gallons of paint for 400 square feet 
Okay. The red pyramid is about 400,000 square feet. So you can extrapolate how many gallons of paint or this coating compound you would need to paint the entire red pyramid. This is again, clear evidence. Pretty big production method. Oh, it's huge. Right. So again, even just getting the guys to do it, right. Think about today, getting some guys to come out and paint your house. You need a crew, you need gallons of paint and all the equipment. Dude, this is industrial scale work and you have to be producing this compound on an industrial scale to be able to supply all of your vendors, all of your paint guys that are going out to paint the pyramids or whatever, they need paint. So again, it's, a, it's not only a functional material that is resistant against acids and solvents. So going back to the Giza Plateau, and you see that erosion around the Menkari pyramid, that severe erosion that everybody says takes thousands and thousands of years. What if there was an environmental event and there was acid rain? So I'm proposing that on the Giza Plateau, we were producing sulfuric acid and hydrochloric acid. All it takes is a small disaster that we've already talked about, some of those gases getting into the atmosphere, and then you have acidic rain, which can very, very easily cause all of those erosion patterns, the erosion in the back of the Sphinx, for example. What if there was a flood of acidic rainwater? That erosion could have happened in a matter of days as opposed to hundreds of thousands of years. So that's just kind of an alternative interpretation of some of the erosion as related to the production of chemicals and the potential cataclysm that brought these structures out of operation. So I try to look at it because I can't do I have geologists in my family and in my circle of friends, and not one single one of these motherfuckers can give me a straight answer. <laughs> it is like slapping yourself in the head with a book. It is so frustrating because they're so pigeonholed into their little academia that anything outside of that is completely incomprehensible. So I brought the chemical analysis of the red pyramid staining to a geologist. And he said, oh, there's no way this is limestone. What you're looking at is a sample of granite. And that, he, that was all he said. He refused to look at it anymore when we all know that the inside of the red pyramid is 100% limestone. So he completely rejected it and refused to work with me anymore, implying that I didn't know the difference between limestone and granite instead of accepting the deficiencies of his academic teaching. Yeah. So again, I, on my end, had to go through, I don't even know, man, like 40 hours, 60 hours of research working with all these people to get the answers I was looking for. Because again, conventional academia can't explain these things. That's the one I was talking about. Yeah, man. So this is Abu Ghraib. And this is not even a pyramid. It's known as a solar temple, which is already contradictory to the entire theory. This is the site that has all of those bowls. And there's numerous different types of bowls. So the bowl that, Darren, you're sitting in one of those bowls right here in that picture behind you that has the three holes carved into the basin. Those bowls are actually originally located at this site. And we found the original housing for these bowls, and there were four on each corner. So we walked around, and I have a video of this on, and a lot of people don't look at the original housings, but they are there. So there was four bowls, a total of 16 bowls on each corner of that structure, four on each corner. They were connected to this central obelisk. And we have some fluid dynamics experiments that are in the works that are demonstrating the fluid dynamics 
of those holes because those holes are curved in a very specific way going into the bowl with three holes. So we're doing some experiments that are going to demonstrate what was happening in those bowls. And then you have those calcite bowls that have the gear-like configuration around the top and one hole bored into them. So I've done a lot of analysis about Abu Ghraib and I have a work in progress theory about what was happening at this site. I cannot say that those calcite bowls are from this structure. That nobody knows where the original housing for those was. And there's no indication on the site that they came from that site. They're just there. And you guys have seen it. They're just up in that line at the top of the complex. They aren't in their original place. And there does not appear to be any housings for those things on site. So nobody knows where those things came from. Yeah. And there's that big sort of big thing in the middle. That's kind yeah. of funny shaped. Um, yeah. Right there. Yeah. So they call that thing a hotep. Yeah. Which there's been some discussion about what that thing is for. So you have to remember that these things are very specifically aligned to magnetic north. And that thing is very intentionally positioned to magnetic northeast, south, and west. That is, is, it's, it, it's is a, it still? It still is, I think, isn't it? I, I believe so. And again, yeah. it's, it depends on where you're measuring true north, right? Is yeah. it magnetic north or true north, and all this stuff? But it's it's so precisely aligned. So we can get to that here in just a minute if you want to skip forward. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask you something quickly about calcite. Um, yeah, I, I saw the trough on the Giza plateau, and Yusuf was pointing out that. There's this calcite trough, and then it goes on further. There's a, another Correct. spot where it goes on. Yep. And I, and I thought about I don't know blood maybe, and I and I I researched like calcite and blood, and apparently it it helps blood move. It helps blood um, tra- the transportation of blood. Right. So I thought that might be in- an interesting thing if if these were used for some sort of sacrificial reason, or or maybe even blood from a chemical p- point of view. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was looking at Abu Sir and the collection bowl and the conduits and stuff, I was proposing that it could have been from like the embalming process or some of the chemicals that were used in the funerary process. But again, we're talking about chemicals. Embalming involves a whole bunch of different chemicals that if they were channeling these chemicals through those channels, that would certainly make sense. But from a perspective of ancient magic, okay, so as somebody who's familiar with ceremonial magic, If you are producing a tincture for a specific purpose or ceremonial ritual, you don't reuse it. Once it's done, it's done and it's discarded. So there's no reason to collect this stuff if it was part of a ceremonial ritual. Yeah. yeah. So again, that's why I kind of, that's a, that's an explanation that fits in. So I try to walk the line between the really far out there advanced technology and stuff that is compatible with the dynastic Egyptian civilization. Cause I think there is a crossover between these two things. Yeah. It's not aliens and spaceships, but it's certainly not just burials either. There's more to be told of this story. So my theory is something that addresses the functionality of the structures as related to practical applications. Making chemicals is a very practical thing to do. Exactly. It makes a lot of sense for an ancient civilization to put all of the time and material and effort into building these things if they were going to be of benefit for the civilization overall. So again, the justification for the amount of effort that goes into these things is evidenced in the production of chemicals because it makes sense. So if you go on to the next one, 
cool. That that should be perfect. Yeah. So again, these yeah, are, these are the calcite. Yeah, yeah. These are the calcite bowls, and we discovered that there is iron oxide deposits inside of these bowls. And if you go to the next one, I may have a picture of it. So it appears that these bowls were originally sheathed with copper. So you have a copper bowl that's carved out of calcite crystal that has a hole going into it. Okay, so this hole is not very good for draining the basin. So it's not for drainage because if it was for drainage, it would be at the bottom. But this hole is high up on the rim. So it's most likely for filling of some sort for something that was not intended to be removed from the bowl. So just some food for thought there. and We can kind of yeah. skip ahead. Yeah. 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 And there's a picture of that, that crag that has that green copper oxide inside of that crag. So again, you have to imagine these crystal bowls were sheathed with this shining copper and again, it, it just blows my mind trying to envision these sites in their original condition and the functionality of these things, especially these bowls, man. It's, it's one of my favorite artifacts in all of Egypt. And it's just like, it's mind blowing. The fact that they could A, carve these things, B, move them, C, coat them in copper, and then D, whatever the hell that they were doing was pretty remarkable regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Same with the Serapium. That's the other one for me too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And again, that's one of those things that nobody can give a good explanation about how they got those damn things in there. And there's been so many different, oh, they filled it with water and they moved and blah, blah, blah. And like, none of it adds up. Well, what about the chemical from a chemical standpoint? Have you thought about the Serapium for chemical storage or something like that? Or fermentation, fermentation. Hmm. This must be the Osiris shaft, right? Yeah, yeah. So Osiris. So it, this past trip, we also had special permission to go down in the Osiris shaft. And this was by far the most amazing adventure that I've ever had in my life. We go down in there. Of course, the electricity turns off as soon as we get ready to get on the first staircase. So we're going in there with headlamps and flashlights. And it was like a real adventure. So you get down in there. And there was also a chemical analysis taken of a coating material that seals these containers down the one, in the Osiris the that, shaft. The one that Darren licked. Oh, yeah. Well, it's also got radioactive chemicals in there. <laughs> I didn't lick it. <laughs> so I, they it took a Geiger gene, counter. So. They took a Geiger counter down in here, and they were testing the ambient radiation in the chamber, and it was double inside of the containers compared to the ambient radiation in the chambers. They also discovered the coating compound is made of titanium, lead, Iron, zinc, and copper. Very similar stuff to what we discovered in the Red Pyramid chemical analysis, which again is evidence of this metallurgical practice done by this ancient civilization. So all of these chemical analyses and things that are coming out are just corroborating my theory. So I came up with this stuff, just kind of a wild you know, shot in the dark that, hey, this is what I think these things are. And fast forward five years, we're getting chemical analysis and fluid dynamics modeling and all this stuff that's literally bringing my ideas to life. So we go down in there, there's these you know, chemical coding compounds on these things, fantastic adventure. I have the full documentary available on my YouTube channel. Click to the next one, shameless plug, the land of chem, C-H-E-M. So again, just some pictures from down inside the Osiris shaft. This container is made of dacite. And dacite is not found anywhere else in Egypt. This is the only site that has a dacite container. And dacite is similar to granite in terms of its quartz content, 
but it has microcrystalline quartz as opposed to granite that has large fragments of quartz. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit because I know we're short on time. So the electromagnetic field experiment, we tested the zones and you can skip to the next one in proximity to the electromagnetic energy field and very, very interesting results. So limestone will eliminate the magnetic component of the electromagnetic field, allowing a discharge from the stone into your finger or a piece of copper wire, an electric discharge. Huh. Where if you take the stones off the machine, you can touch the machine and absolutely nothing happens. If you put red granite on top of the machine, the magnetic component is absorbed by the mass of the stone and the electrical component gets contributed into the quartz crystal. Nothing happens. There is no discharge from the red granite or the calcite crystal. So the limestone and the black basalt will allow a discharge of electric energy into the wire where the quartz and the calcite contain that electromagnetic wow. energy. Now, with quartz, everybody talks about the piezoelectric property of the production of electricity. It's not that. It's something called the inverse piezoelectric property, where if you charge quartz with electricity, it produces ultrasound. That is the reason for the utilization of the geology in these structures. And I'm not going to get into it anymore because I just kind of introduced this on my channel, but this is the the ultimate secret of the function of the Egyptian pyramids as related to this acoustics and resonance that everyone talks about. But no one can give a satisfactory explanation on how that actually occurs. So fast forward again to my research, and I'm finally bringing to the table the mechanisms of operation that are involved in producing the acoustic resonance inside the structure. The Great Pyramid Antechamber, for example, is a catalytic amplifier. If you go inside that antechamber, that is the most resonant part of the entire structure. It's got the these cavity. weird, it's got these weird, it's weird construction too. It's oh, got yeah. like slots built all the way up yep. into the walls. And yeah. Yeah. So that is an acoustic catalyst generator. And I have a lot of evidence into why I think that is the case. And I haven't explained it yet, but I'm giving you guys some, some insight in yeah, what's yeah. coming up in the second book. So I wrote this first book called An Initiation into Ancient Chemistry Through the Degrees of the Egyptian Pyramids which is literally just intended to kind of introduce people to the concept. And I have a work in progress, second book coming out. If you want to skip to the next one, it's all my like social media plugs. So I got merch, <laughs> Land of Chem t-shirts, the copies of the book of all available on my website, which is the landofchem.com, C-H-E-M. I think I have 70 episodes now on my YouTube channel explaining all of this in great, great depth. So the book, is a fictional story of a young man's initiation into an ancient secret society that was responsible for the construction and operation of the Egyptian pyramids, right? Nice. So in this story, he gets an explanation of exactly how these things operate. And the genesis for the YouTube channel is to provide ancillary material to help people further understand what's in the book. So demonstrations, videos, diagrams, all this kind of stuff, because I don't have copyright you know, ownership of any diagrams and stuff. And it's, I didn't want to have a picture book. That was the reason for the whole YouTube channel is so that I can show you more of what is actually contained in the book. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. When, when's book two coming out? Very, very soon. Hopefully sometime this year. It's, it's almost wow. done. Okay. Yeah. 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 This has been great. It really is. I mean, I, I was, I was nearly convinced when I was in there that I was inside a machine of some kind. So this, I mean, yeah. this fits right in with sort of what I think was going on there.
Oh, I had that that exact same experience. My first time in the red pyramid, I was like, oh, people are not supposed to go inside here. I'm literally <laughs> inside of a chemical reactor and we're not supposed to be down in here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. This has been great. I mean, we should have you back on when your book, when your second book comes out and we'll go Absolutely, over. Absolutely, man. I mean, no, this it seems great, like, man. I didn't mean to go like, two hours, but you no, get me no, started. it's okay. <laughs> it, it's all good. I mean, I mean, you're on, you seem to be onto some new stuff all the time too. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, always moving forward here. So. Yep. That's fantastic. Where Labor of love, man. This will be my life's work. Yeah, right on. Where can people find all your stuff before we let you so, go? Yeah, so all of my social media is The Land of Chem, C-H-E-M. So I'm on Instagram, The Land of Chem. My website is The Land of Chem, C-H-E-M. My YouTube is The Land of Chem. You can find me there for pretty much all different socials and uh, my website. Right on, buddy. We'll let you know when it comes out. Thanks so much. Awesome, guys. Thank you so yeah, much. This was awesome and look forward yeah. to doing it again. Thanks, right Jeff. Have a great yeah. night. Yeah. All right, guys. Later. Bye. And that was a chat with Jeff in the land of Cam. What'd you think, buddy? Well, yeah, it was pretty mind blowing. Yep. That I, was uh, pretty great. Yep. I, I don't, I don't, I think I got a little bit of a problem with, um, with the, with the, the unfinished aspect, you know, the, the, uh, the small pyramid where the, the scraping happened, like the huge 12 inch radius. Like, I, I don't know if that explains that at all, but, uh, and, and the small blocks, like I do think the casing stones are huge at the top, but I had some pictures, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to slow his presentation down at all, but yeah, it was fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Well, it like, it could, it doesn't have to be the whole thing. It just part of it. Exactly. That just leads to more like technological advance. So. Exactly. Exactly. The chemical. Probably chemical worth checking analysis. out the video on this one on YouTube or Rockfin or wherever. It'll be on both those platforms. If we're not kicked off YouTube yet or striked out or whatever the fuck. Big thanks to Jeff for coming on the show, of course. Big thanks to you guys for listening. Even bigger thanks. You guys, we need to, we need some value coming back in the value for value model. If you guys are uh, enjoying the show, if you're getting some value from it, and I know there's tens of thousands of you that seem to be getting some value from it, maybe you can send some value back our way this week or this month or this year. America.ca slash support. Sign up for a monthly, make a one-time donation. This is not a free podcast. Contrary to as free as it seems, it is a value for value show. And we operate on the premise that if you like it, you will pay for it in some way, someday, with either financially or some people do art for us or, you know, do all sorts of stuff. Email, spam, gram, whatever you can do. It's all over there at GrabAmerica.ca. We love you guys. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.